VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, June the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and get in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, most people, maybe people take it for granted around here, but to get out on one of the notable whale tours, well, on the boat, whether it be Gatherals or O'Brien's or Mussels or Iceberg Tours, it's great. But the whales are in St. Vincent's. Dave, have you ever been out to St. Vincent's to see the whales in action? It's truly extraordinary. For everyone who's done it, it is mind-boggling just how close you are to the whales. You can smell them. There's a deep, a steep drop-off just off the shore, so consequently they get in really close to feed. So do yourself a favor. If you have the opportunity, the capacity, and want to burn that amount of gas, go to St. Vincent's and check out the whales. Just saw a video this morning which prompted that comment. Okay, quickly before we get into the news. So I heard Brian Medore talking about the NHL awards that were given out last night. And for folks who watch the NHL throughout the regular season in particular, just marveling at Connor McDavid. I mean, he is by far and away the best hockey player in the world. And, you know, last night, of course, he wrapped up his third heart as the top scorer in the league with his 153 points, which is only one more than Phil Esposito back in 1971. But inside some of the records, you know, records are made to be broken, but some records are never going to be touched. Just look at the NHL career numbers, or not career numbers, the regular season scoring tallies. Inside the top 15, and McDavid's season at 153 uh, is 15th, best season, highest tally of points in the history of the National Hockey League. Inside the top 15, there's only two people on that list who aren't named Gretzky or Lemieux. That's Steve Eiserman, who had 155 points back in 89, and McDavid, of course, at 15. Talk about the records. Gretzky has the four best regular seasons. Uh, the f- top of the list is 1986, of course, with these 215. Forget it. So 215, 212, 208, 205, and Lemieux came up at just one point short of the 200 mark back in 1989 as well. So I just thought that was awesome. Uh, anyway, let's go. So we had a caller yesterday, little chat about a variety of things, including darts, and he asked me if I knew how the locals were doing at the Canadian Open. And so that's Jason Carnu and Clyde Spracklin. They finished second in the team event. Good showing for sure. If you happen to know how they did yesterday in singles, just send it along because someone actually sent me an email overnight saying, please do find out how the lads did in the singles. And I couldn't find it, but if you can share that info, let's go. So school's out. You know, there's always an opportunity to do a little review of the school year inside the K-12 system. But just something that, you know, I don't know how much attention it gets is just think about it, how dire it must be for some students when there is no opportunity to go to school, take advantage of the Kids Eat Smart program or their school lunch program, and consequently may indeed be missing meals simply because school is closed. It's remarkably sad. So some 22% of households in this province are food insecure, which could be for a variety of reasons, whether it be where they live in proximity to options, it could be about their socioeconomic status, it could be about a variety of things, right? But anyway... That's just madness. So inside the world of food, you know, we all see the stubborn food inflation prices going into the grocery store. You get nothing for 50 bucks. But here's some issues, or pardon me, here's some different contexts inside the world of food. So there's an organization called the National Zero Waste Council, and they have a look at household food waste in Canada. And these are numbers from 2022. Remarkable stuff. 63% of the food Canadians throw away could have been eaten. 
I guess that doesn't go on to further elaborate on that front, but you have to imagine that people are still really playing by the best before date. And on some products, whether it be dairy or otherwise, I get why people are like that, and I'll admit freely that I'm like that. But the food industry is not doing us any favors. You know, the best before is extremely misleading. It doesn't mean the food is expired. It might not be as nutritious or as tasty a couple of days after the best before, but certainly still able to eat it. So whether it be labeling or these best before date issues, the food industry, look, they got us right where they want us because we all have to eat. But that's remarkable. 63% of the food thrown out could have been eaten. Some more numbers for your consideration. The average Canadian household that amounts to four 140 kilograms of waste per year, which has a cost of in and around $1,300. As a whole, we throw away 2.3 million tons of edible food each year, costing Canadians $20 billion. In terms of, well, all foods are being wasted, but based on weight, the most prominently wasted foods, vegetables, 30%, fruit, 15%, leftovers, 13%, Bread and bakery items, 9%. Dairy and eggs, 7%. Here's some context that will really blow your mind. Okay, uh, for perspective, every day in Canada, we waste 130,000 heads of lettuce, 1.3 million tomatoes, 2.6 million potatoes, 650,000 loaves of bread, 1.3 million apples, 640,000 bananas, a million cups of milk, and almost 500,000 eggs. Remarkable stuff, you know. With the prices and stuff, like, I mean, I'm the leftover king. I really feel terrible going to the garbage bin with leftovers, so we do all we can. I cook too much all the time, I suppose, which is why I am the leftover king. But can you imagine that? All that amount of waste, $20 billion worth of food that could have been eaten each year, ends up in the landfill. Anyway, you want to take it on. Let's do exactly that. Also, Mike Gatherall from Gatherall's Tours was on with Ben Murphy this morning on the VOC Morning Show. Talking about how the season's gone so far and prospects for the rest of the tourist season, he did go on to reiterate a point that's made in some corners. And I think, by just based on what I hear, what I read, and the emails I get, Mike's in the minority, but I'm with him. It's the whole concept of how easy and expensive it is to get here. So he's going on to talk about the fact that the St. John's International Airport Authority is indeed working towards uh, more direct flights internationally. You've heard this story before. So inside the most recent budget, $1.5 million, which will go nowhere near attracting the kind of routes that Mike Gatherall and Mr. Hogan at the airport authority or John Steele or other people in the business community and or the tourism sector, because if we don't get this right, we're going to be left behind. I know this sounds ludicrous to offer guaranteed revenue to organizations or companies like WestJet or Air Canada, who, again, are not doing us any favors, certainly not in this province. In Saskatchewan, the government has gone forward and guaranteed revenue for WestJet for a direct flight in and out of, of all places, Minneapolis. What the attraction is in Minneapolis, I'm not really sure. So it, the, at the International Airport here in St. John's, there is year-round international flights to St. pierre Miquelon. Not a huge impact. There are seasonal direct flights to Florida, Mexico, Jamaica, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic. That really feels to me like pleasure travel opportunities for us. Now, of course... Residents or citizens of those of countries could indeed choose to be part of that direct flight coming back to Canada and back to Newfoundland and Labrador. But what do you make of that concept? I know, again, I'm in the minority here thinking it's a good idea. But when we talk about a sector of the economy that we do rely on, some 20,000 people work in the hospitality sector. And yes, if there's an opportunity to grow those numbers, money that comes into the province from out of province or out of country 
has a much bigger impact than me and you circulating our money where we live. We know that international travelers or visitors from outside the province will spend at least three times more, so says hospitality in Newfoundland and Labrador, than those of us who stay uh, taking a staycation, for instance. Then you look at the prices everywhere. So I'm going to go visit my sister. Hotel accommodations in Toronto have doubled since 2019. Doubled. The airfare that we all see when you book a flight, whether it be for business or pleasure or to visit family or whatever the case may be, it's out of control. It's punitive. It's absolutely prohibitive for many. Will this result in a crash in pleasure travel? We cannot see the tourism sector get battered any worse than it was during the pandemic, but it's being priced out of many people's reach. So you want to take on travel? Let's go. A couple of interesting on-the-ground travel routes. And, of course, with this province, we have such a rich aviation history. You know, Earhart, Halcock and Brown, which we could capitalize more so if you ask me my opinion on it. But anyway, let's go. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right, just with the ground travel. For the young fellow who was doing 157 kilometers an hour in a 50-kilometer zone, you know, we'll talk about impounding the vehicle, and he'll pay a big whopping fine or what have you. But this is far too common. I mean, every time we see these types of stories, I'm sure it drives you mad. For me, knowing that my wife and my children and my family, my brothers and sisters and nephews may indeed be on the road while someone like that is gone haywire behind the wheel, what should the penalty be? You know, sometimes punishment may not be uh, the deterrent that some people think it is, but if, for instance, this young fella had his license suspended for, I don't know, five years? Maybe keep him off the road anyway, but that one drives me. And if you're in either Mount Pearl or Paradise and you're driving around where those speed cameras are and you've gotten a letter, wonder how you react to it, whether or not it will keep your foot a little lighter on the loud pedal, as they call it. So the speed cameras are one thing. This is an interesting concept that was in the province of Quebec. A small community, uh, pardon me, a small city called Brossard is on the south shore of Montreal. They were piloting this project, and this is an interesting thought. So what it was is there's a sensor inside the traffic lights. And the light is a regular traffic light, and it's red when it's at rest. But when a vehicle gets close enough where the sensors pick up on it, if you are going the speed limit or below, the light turns green. If you're not, it remains red to slow you down and to stop you. I kind of like it. Now, Quebec's transport ministry said it's too confusing. It may lead to safety issues on the road, so they put a stop to it. But there's another 50 communities just in that province alone who thought, that makes sense to me. And it actually kind of makes sense to me, too. What do you think? Let's go. All right. And you talk about international flights. We know that there's some conversations with airlines in Germany, basically because of the MOUs that have been signed with that country regarding the wind-to-hydrogen-ammonia play. This is probably our last chance this week to really have your voice heard about these projects, whether you're all in or all out on a variety of areas. The question that many people will ask, if you're certainly not living in the area where you might get a permanent job, is exactly what's in it for us. Just another breakdown. This coming from government. I'm not so sure how verifiable every number is here, and we can debate that concept if you're so inclined this morning. A 1,000-megawatt project brings in an estimated or forecasted $3.5 billion over the course of 30 years. So that's meaningful money. Of course it is. Still big questions about the water royalty and how little these companies are going to have to spend on licensed water, whether they use it or not. And it doesn't even kick in until they've recovered their capital costs, which could lead to some accounting magic. So probably our last chance this week or early next week to be heard on the wind projects. And I know some communities are absolutely looking forward to it. Others not so much. How are we doing on the phone there this morning, David? 
Let's get her going. Uh, okay. So, you know, it does feel cold to talk about the Titan search when we know the five are dead. But I do think there's going to be more and more questions about who foots the bill. And again, it seems really callous to be even talking about it so quickly. But it's meaningful money. So the Canadian Coast Guard, Search and Rescue, the American Coast Guard, they say quite clearly that they do not charge for their services. But when some of these endeavors are as risky as they are, should there not be a different approach taken? I get it. People are dead. That's the story. Not the international media celebrities that were here. Maybe not the accreditation or the testing, although all part of the discussion. But knowing that this is going to be more and more popular as more and more rich folk want to do these things so that they can brag to their pals about it, what do we do on that front? And compare the effort and the monies spent to conduct a search for the Titan submersible versus the fact that there's been tens of thousands of migrants that have been lost at sea since 2015, and the searches there and the conversation there and the focus therein, nowhere even close. So I think there's a conversation to be had on that front if you are so inclined. All right. This was all the rage for a little while. David Johnston as the special rapporteur who's stepping down because of people say he's too closely linked with the Trudeau government or the Trudeau Foundation. It looks like now, in hindsight, it was an absolute mistake to appoint Mr. Johnston to this important role. But there's been two agencies created to look at intelligence gathering, dissemination of intelligence, foreign interference in elections, and otherwise. They are the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, NSACOP, and the National Security Intelligence Review Agency, the NSERA. So, not so long ago, the Prime Minister, uh, I think it was just last month, the Prime Minister waived cabinet confidentiality for those two federal agencies. It would still be incumbent on them to keep them the information inside the walls of their committee meetings. But now that the cabinet confidentiality has, has been waived, the organizations, and Sarah in particular, say that there's been a limited number of documents, subset of documents, not the entirety of what they should be able to see so we can get down to the brass tacks. But isn't it remarkable? For a couple of weeks there, and since Mr. Johnson has said he's going to step down after his second report, which is due, I guess, in the next few days, is it's kind of gone by the wayside. You know, is that simply because the news cycle is so breakneck quick and or it is maybe not the big deal some people are trying to make it out to be or is it now that johnson's been removed there was a sigh of relief on all sides and maybe the public inquiry the demands and the rhetoric and the hyperbole that surrounded this conversation has waned i still think it's important and i do think that without a public inquiry the skepticism will be more intensified, which is bad for all of us. doesn't matter what party you support, who your favorite politicians are. And yes, we probably won't get a whole lot more information for public eyeballs inside a public inquiry, given the classified nature and the secrets that would be part of the discussion. But if you want to take on any of the federal issues, let's go. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My fave is when you pick up the phone. And very quickly, we want to say uh, good morning and thanks for tuning in. And happy birthday to Brandon May. Hope you have a great day, buddy. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we started off this morning talking about the fact that the whales are indeed feeding just off the shores out in St. Vincent. So let's go to St. Vincent's. Uh, line number three, say good morning to the owner and operator of the Whale Song B&B. That's Rita Raymond. Good morning, Rita. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks, boy. 
But I tell you, for me, it's one of the most memorable sights you'll ever see when you talk about watching wildlife is the whales in St. Vincent's. Just paint us a picture, Rita, what people are seeing. Well, they're so close to shore, you can almost touch them. Well, you can smell them for sure. And the beach is just lined up with people. For Well, since they came here Father's Day, and every day the numbers increase. So yesterday was a beautiful day here. And we were out there till probably 9 o'clock last night. In the evening, they seem to put on a bigger show. Maybe they feed more getting ready for nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. And, you know, for folks who haven't seen it, it really feels like you could literally touch them. They're that close to shore. So the last time I was out there, I'm going to guess there was three or 400 people on the beach. We were there for a few hours, just captivated with what we saw. For How long do they normally hang around, Rita? Well, this year we hope they'll stay longer because I think the Caitlin fishery isn't open this year. So usually we have them for a few weeks. And this year they came a bit earlier, and I'm hoping they'll stay a few weeks, but we can never predict nature. Absolutely. For your business... Do you get the feeling that there's people booking more and more of your rooms around this season simply to see the whales in St. Vincent's? Yes, and they want to stay because they get here, if, say, you're from St. John's, and you don't want to leave, <laughs> so they stay for the night. The only thing is a lot of people have rooms booked because they know about St. Vincent's, and they know about the whales, and they know what time of year to be here. So they book in January. <laughs> And how about the rest of the season for your operation? Uh, it slows down a little in August. Uh, May this year was busy. June was really busy this month. And July looks like it's going to be busy as well, which is a good thing. Absolutely. And for most B&Bs, Airbnbs or otherwise, you know, you'll have your guests uh, very likely sign a book to say they've been there, maybe leave a comment about their experience at the Whale Song B&B. Do you do much in the way of tracking where all your guests are coming from? I have a good idea. Uh, the majority of our guests are from Ontario. This year we haven't seen too many Europeans. And since COVID, I find there's a decrease in the United States guests. So Canadians are coming, and more and more Newfoundlanders are coming here to St. Vincent's. A lot of people didn't know about our secret, <laughs> our whales, the best-kept secret in Canada probably on our beach here. But starting because of social media, more and more people now are aware of the whales here. And so they should be. And as everyone knows, I have a soft spot for St. Mary's Bay, so I'm always happy to, to promote what's going on out there. Anything else you want to talk about this morning, Rita, while we have you? Well, this is the concept. You sit on the beach. It's free. <laughs> it's the best experience you'll ever have in your life. And, yeah, just come and enjoy. And now that all the highway work is completed, it's even better. Yeah, it's not too bad driving this route, especially become Route 90. Mm -hmm. And it's not that far from St. John's. People think we're like three hours away. It's an hour and a half. So we need more and more Newfoundlanders to get to know their province. 
I couldn't agree more. It was well into my adult years before I went back. Because as a child, we had seen the Wales of St. Vincent's. But then it just left my radar. But the last time I went is absolutely mind-boggling experience. And I'll be trying to scoot out now before the Wales are gone for this particular season. It's good to have you on, Rita. Have a great summer. Thanks for promoting us here. Anytime. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Here you go. Rita Raymond is the owner-operator of the Whale Song B&B. And she mentioned the Capelin. Of course, that's what they're doing. The whales are in feeding on the Capelin. And if I remember correctly, there is a Capelin fishery going to uh, proceed again this year. I think it's 14,000 tons, uh, which is not huge, but Capelin are in the critical zone. The prediction is from DFO and others that the uh, Capelin will remain in the critical zone for the next 30 years. So I know the amount of Capelin taken in the, uh, in the commercial fishery is a small percentage of the biomass, but we only have so much control over protecting certain species and ensuring that they're there. Because if you talk about capelin as a forage fish, an absolute linchpin in the ecosystem, I get it. It's not my money being put on the table for not fishing for the capelin, but your thoughts as a harvester or anything else, we can take it on. Uh, Let's go now to line number two. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing fine this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So last night... um I was watching NTV and, of course, seeing about they had a rally during the weekend regarding homelessness and uh, the barricades that they're putting up on the stage on George Street. Um, Just even last week, uh, driving home from work, you could see that a lot of tents were uh, underneath the overpasses uh, just as you come off to Team Gujum. To me, it's really sad. I haven't seen it this bad the whole 16 years that I've been living in St. John's. Uh, something that I haven't seen in my life um, so bad other than living in Toronto. It brings hurt, uh, failure to me as a province that we're allowing this stuff to happen, how the city can go ahead, they could pull up the bootstraps and they could take away shelter from people who really need it. The one thing that we all know is if you go on Marketplace or if you go on Facebook or Kijiji or whatever, You've seen the prices of rent is extreme. It's the worst I've ever seen. I'm a renter myself. Um, we pay a fair, I guess, compared to some people. But when you look at the whole concept of rent, I really think that St. John's need to gather with the rest of the provinces and, and cities in this country and put a cap on the rent reason why I say that is we do not have enough places to rent and people are now building up shop. They're buying the houses as investments, good on them, but they're charging enormous amount of rent and they're renting it by the room. So now they're using it as a source of income. It's out of control. Now people don't even have a place to live. So to me, go ahead. I was, you know, if you're a landlord, they would immediately say, look, the cost of buying a home, keeping it up to date, the mortgage rates, that everything has gone up so high that a cap on rent just might push us down another direction where there's some loopholes surrounding rent control, you know, with establishing things as condominiums or you're only able to lease them or different things where the landlords do have options when it comes to their revenue stream. I. You know, I would imagine the rental increases have indeed seen more profit for landlords, but I would think a lot of the rental increase has gone to the cost of just having a commercial property like that. But I know where you're coming from here. The no, issue these are the private homes. Pardon? Like the rent, these are private homes that people are renting. Yeah, 
you're not registered as an apartment, like in a building. The apartment, yes, have increased your their rate, but not to the extreme that one time you would get a two-bedroom home, say, in the east end of St. John's for the $1,300 their last fall, and is now close to 3000 So yeah. tell me the big difference. What it is is that now people are, like I said, are renting by the room. They're used to that income coming in. I see the prices of rooms, what people are charging. Some people are charging eight. Some people are charging nine. Some people are even charging $1,000 for a room. It's nonsense. There's no reason why the Newfoundland and Labrador should be so expensive to live in. And we got nobody to blame but our government. Our government is failing people. Our health care is failing us. This province in a whole is failing us. The homelessness issue, as someone who I've lived most of my life, I lived in Alberta for quite a while, but, you know, other than that, just lived in St. John's. And it is a bigger deal than I've ever seen before. You know, when you hear from folks like uh, End Homelessness St. John's or Stella Circle, they see more people than ever who are indeed homeless and the whole concept of entire families being homeless. The rental issue is... You know, of course, price has to be considered, and the price of buying a home is out of control in this country, and it's different in different hot markets. I mean, the average price of a detached home in Toronto is over a million bucks. Remarkable. Even some houses in and around where I live, they are asking money for those homes that are simply not worth it, but of course, my house, my house is worth exactly what someone will pay for it. So I don't know where the solution lies, but more and more people, whether it be moving to this province or moving out of rural communities to be closer to services, like whether it be the Gathering Place or Stella Circle, those types of things, we're seeing the numbers grow. There is a lot of the answers to a lot of our social ills do begin with housing. There's absolutely no question. There's been funding from the province and the federal government to build some 1,500 affordable housing units here in the province, most of them on the Northeast Avalon, but you can't build them quick enough. And then we've got all of these vacant uh, units belong to and operated by Newfoundland Labrador Housing, so there's a bunch of different moving parts here, but no one's going to argue your point, Karen, that the homelessness issue in St. John's in particular, and I would suggest most of the province, is growing uh, quicker than ever before, and it is heartbreaking to see. Just a quick comment on the George Street issue. You know, the city will say that they're putting up a security fence for reflecting the safety concern. So whether it be there's some references to someone falling off or someone got into an electrical room, which is absolutely a problem, but the inability to sleep on the George Street s stage simply means you're going to go somewhere else to sleep, outside. Right? So we're not solving oh, or settling anything. It might be a safety concern, okay. It might be an eyesore for visitors, okay. But that person is simply going to go sleep somewhere else out under the conditions and the elements. So we're not addressing yeah, homelessness at all on that front. And again... Again, do you actually think that it was a lot safer to have them behind that stage, which they've been doing for years? 16 years I've been living here, and 16 years I've been seeing 10. So you tell me that the poor person that's down there cleaning up cans and cleaning up bottles off George Street for free, yes, they're making a little tiny bit of pocket money. But at the same time, they're barricading off their home, regardless if it's a tent or not, and then that poor person is going underneath an overpass. What's more dangerous? It's none of uh, it's none of the city's concern 
other than make an excuse that it's unsafe. The more unsafe as a predicament is having something coming down off that overpass, a car coming down off that overpass. You know, it's time for everybody in this city to open up their eyes and realize that, okay, if they are charging for that rent, okay, and example, my house, this place that I'm renting right now is 11 years old. And you know what? It hasn't been painted since 11 years old. This place do not get paid attention to. I pass over $1,500 every month. And I've yet to meet the owner. And he will not put a gun in this place. Karen, I appreciate the conversation and the time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, the vacancy, some people say it's the Airbnbs and the like, even though there's been some pretty comprehensive uh, look at the Airbnb issue regarding vacancy rights here. Maybe not the impact that some people think it might be, but the vacancy rate here for rentals in this part of the province is around 3%. So add in the fact that there's fewer and fewer spaces and the exorbitant cost for rent in some of the units, which, boy, oh, boy, I've seen some rental units that they're charging a pretty hefty sum for that are less than attractive options, I can tell you that. All right, let's get to the break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Hurricane Fiona, or I guess post-tropical storm Fiona, that made landfall out on the southwest coast, and so some of the work that needs to be done and money that need to flow. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Murray, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call again. Happy to do it. I got another message here from the Fiona response team. If you'd like to hear it, it's only short. Okay. The only Hurricane Fiona impact zone designated is in Port of Bass. Now, we understand there are other issues in other communities to be addressed. Impacted by and we'll continue to work on it. So, Port of Bass, we lost 11 homes there destroyed in Burnt Islands alone. And is not designated as an impact zone. And as for the 60 houses that are taken down now in Port of Bass, that got nothing to do with Hurricane Fiona. They're way above the sea level, a lot of them. 50 feet, some of them. And my house is there. I'm pretty, sometimes I'm level with the water. And I'm not designated as a flood zone. And... The money that they're using to take those houses down, if it's Fiona money, is abuse of it. Because this money was donated to offset the damage occurred by Fiona, incurred, whatever. And if they're taking down houses that had no damage, that's abuse of the money. And I guess, Patty, you're familiar with the flood mitigation money, are you? I am. Now, you know, okay, I am familiar with it, yes. And there's different pockets of money that went towards recovery efforts out on the southwest coast. But it seems remarkable that there would be one community, one community only, that has that des- designation because Fiona didn't know where Port of Basque was. Fiona didn't care. The storm surge didn't care. The wind didn't care. So wherever it hit, it seems to me that 
it's as widespread as the reality on the ground. Not exactly. that it's one community or another. I mean, I just don't get how the designation of, was arrived at. It appears to me, sir, that Andrew Parsons and Brian Button is looking after Portobas and Portobas only. It's time for Andrew Parsons to come on this coast, come to the communities, not Portobas, and have a meeting with us. And as for this flood mitigation money, I don't know when it was announced. I mean, it's been here for years by uh, Graham Little, it was provincial, and uh, Ralph Goodall was the federal member that came here and announced it. So if they're using federal money to take down houses that had no impact from Fiona because someone designated as a flood zone, that's abuse of taxpayers' money. The flood mitigation money, though, is a federal and provincial partnership, and it's it's as old as 2017 or 2018 or something along those lines, and most of that was to do flood zone mapping, if I remember correctly. Because remember we had those issues out in Deer Lake where the river overflowed and what have you, and we didn't have firm understanding of risks associated with flood maps and not, n- not being done. So that's what I believe that money was earmarked for in particular. Well, apparently it's supposed to be like, uh, yeah, it was done for Cornerbrook, the Homer River, so much in the Hicksploits, and down there where they had the hoist problem. That's right, Badger. Badger. Yeah. And But if they got their hands into this money... And taking down houses that's not ooh, ooh, designated as a flood zone because they want to put a green part up there. That's what they're playing. Brian Button was on the news and said, we're going to put a green space here so people can come back and reminisce about their homes, their poppy's homes. In the meantime, my house is there underwater half the time. And a good many houses around us, because we live on a highland here, Patty, uh-huh. with a causeway out to it. We're lower than the rest of the community. And it don't seem like I can get anything done. I don't know. I went to a town meeting here last Wednesday, town council. They got to be the most incompetent group of people that I ever spoke to. I asked the mayor about this money, this flood mitigation money. I don't know. I asked the self-proclaimed engineer about the flood mitigation money. I don't know. And the deputy mayor told me, you don't know what you're talking about, Marie. There's no such money. But the flood so, mitigation uh, money was was not for actual cleanup after floods. I, if I remember correctly, and I'll have a look during the upcoming break, I think it was solely to map out flood zones. To map out flood zones yeah. and remove homes and property what is in the danger zone. That's, now, I don't know about the salt water. I guess it's, it should concern flood. So, who got the right to designate this money to houses that not didn't have any impact from Fiona whatsoever? And here in Burnt Islands, my house and other houses around here is going underwater. Every two weeks, Patty, I get water come in. Full moon, new moon, water in my basement. Mm-hmm. Washing in, washing out, under the concrete floor. Water runs in under the flooring, under the concrete floor, and where I had to tear all the flooring out, there's nails there, water squirts up through. So if I'm not in a flood zone, I must have floating house. So I don't know what else to do. I don't know who else to turn to. And all I get from them is someday, 
we're going to do something. It'll be too late when, when it's all gone there. This Corey Greeley told me, I was talking to him on the phone, he said, you should be thankful you're sleeping in your own bed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's shameful. I don't know what else, who else to turn to. I've called Paul Lane's office. He's on vacation. I called David Brothel's office. He's supposed to get back to me. Paul Lane's secretary is supposed to get back to me. So I'm just waiting to see if someone had called the Liberal government out in the House. Well, I'll find out exactly who's responsible for offering the designation of one community and one community only because we all saw the pictures, we all heard the stories. It wasn't just Port of Basque, which is why I continue to say the southwest coast because, yes, Port of Basque was absolutely battered. No one's denying that. In that community alone, there's something in the neighborhood of 100 homes that are ininhabitable, but that doesn't mean Burnt Island didn't get walloped either. Uh, Murray, I'm going to find out the designation question in particular and I wish I could point you to someone who could get you some relief or some assistance, but I don't know who that person would be. Okay, Patty. Appreciate your time. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, would that be the province itself that would be making that designation? Because it doesn't really jibe with the reality of what happened when post-tropical storm Fiona made landfall. Anyway, I'll, I'll figure that one out. Uh, let's go to line number, or will I take a break here remotely on time, David? Okay, let's do exactly that. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Offer your comments on whatever the conversations are, or maybe what the conversations should be. So uh, a couple of people in the last few minutes have actually reached out to me talking about the fact that it's not looking good this year for Terry Riley and his annual Teddy Bears Picnic. So apparently no sponsorship, doesn't seem like there's much interest in trying to support what has been an uber-popular event over the last number of years. I've got to think it's got to be somewhere around 40 years that Terry Riley's been putting off this event. So if that's something that interests you or you're looking to connect with Terry or you think that you might have someone up your sleeve who could be a sponsor for the annual Teddy Bear Picnic, which is really popular, uh, then you can connect with us and we can connect you with Terry. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, carbon tax. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I want to start by wishing uh, everybody yesterday was uh, Tax Freedom Day in Newfoundland and Labrador. That, that's the point when the average family um, actually gets to start having some of the money that the rest of the time they've actually uh, – 51% of their income has gone to paying taxes. So the first 177 days you're working for all the different things that are so-called leaders uh, – spend our money on federal provincial and municipal yeah uh, uh, you know that was uh in my head at some point yesterday morning and i should have brought it up because that's something that uh, every year someone and it's the same organization sent me that today is the tax-free day uh interestingly then you go back to the beginning of the year just how quickly when you talk about the median income of canadians and how quickly the top one percent make what is the median uh income for average canadians and they do it just about by supper time on day one amazing yeah anyway well, you know it's our choices every day that feeds into their money so uh you know i think i think you know getting into the whole uh boiling frog analogy it seems like you know, the temperature in our pot just keeps rising and many are still relaxing and enjoying the warm bath. So the gentleman from Burnt Islands, I mean, if you read between the lines, I mean, I don't know how taxpayers wrap their head around this, but there's a lot of people in Canada 
who live in flood zones, whether that's you know uh, river valleys or uh, along the coast. And if the taxpayer is going to be on the hook for replacing, making all the people whole who live in that situation, it's a massive liability. I can't even imagine how you'd even start calculating it. But it's a dangerous precedent to start anywhere doing it. Uh, you know, that's not to be cold or heartless. It's just a massive number. You know, you get into the Ottawa Valley or you get into any of the valleys in Alberta or Ontario, you're just talking, you know, probably trillions of dollars. Like, I don't even know how you even start estimating how much stuff is potentially as climate change continues its impacts and uh, storm surges and sea level rise and uh, more more dramatic rain events. You know, if they're going to start just giving people a check, it's one thing to give someone $250,000 in port basket It's another thing to give someone a million dollars in Ontario or Quebec or Alberta. But well, I, I mean... People move to different locations for different reasons historically. The issue about, well, it's going to become more and more difficult to get insurance from your traditional insurance companies. So 80% of federal disaster assistance over the last 20 years has been associated with flood damage. So when the money is flowing, I don't think it's a cruel or mean conversation to be had about where rebuilding takes place. I mean, if you live in the Mississippi River Delta and you get flooded out repeatedly, they won't insure you unless you're willing to move. And people who won't, consequently, are just taking their chances in a well-documented and understood flood zone, similar to, I don't know what percentage of Canadians live in a flood zone, but that is, that's exactly what that flood mitigation money was about, was to map the flood zones. But to know that 80% of federal disaster assistance went to flood damage is pretty remarkable number, and that's billions of dollars a year. The record was... I think in 2013 or 2014, we were around $5 billion. That number has almost tripled since. Yeah, and it's only going to continue to go up, unfortunately. Yep. And uh, you know, and, you know, and again, it's the whole, the whole thing that let's not worry about next year until, until next year. And you know, I, the populism of telling people what they want to hear and not scaring people, but you know, just reality. I mean, if you lived in a traditional fishing community and looked like the fish weren't going to be very good this year, well, people started making different choices as opposed to uh, the seemingly the way we uh, conduct ourselves now. So I was looking at. You know the colder weather this this spring and 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 summer even um, just just I just you know we hear so much about how much people struggled over the winter with it, with heating their homes and and I think how many people are really still struggling like I looked at you know just cursory look of mine for for May up 26 to 50 percent across you know buildings and uh, residents and uh, June up 20 to 40 percent depending on what I was looking at and, and you know it's 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 so hard to really feel how, like, think how that's really impacting people. And and now, of course, we're getting into uh, the carbon tax backstop starting in, starting this week. And I thought I'd have a look and see what that would cost the average uh, Newfoundlander and Labradorian. And uh, the average, if so, 48,000 homes as of 2019. So it's probably down a little bit. Heat there are heated with with furnace oil and the upcoming 17 cent per liter um, carbon tax which will hit so on average um, on average that uh, the average home will uh, burn 207 liters per month so that's 2484 liters per year so at 17 cents a liter it'll cost them 422 dollars and 
on top of that, the average uh, Newfoundlander spends around uh, 115 uh, liters per month on fuel, and that's 1,380 liters per year, and, and that'll cost another 193.10. So the the average Newfoundlander it will cost 615 dollars and 20 cents in carbon tax um, this year increase. So so uh, and when you look at the uh, the climate incentive action payment, which we're all going to be getting um, every quarter. And it's amazing how everybody talks about it, talks about how a family of four, how much money they'll get, which the reality is that's not the average size of a Canadian or Newfoundland family. Again, it's just kind of like tell people what they want to hear, I guess. But but anyway, even still, um, a single person will actually get $656. So if you do eat your home, if you're the average person eating your home, with oil and driving the average, consuming average amount of gas, and you're a single person, you'll actually come out ahead. You know, that, but that doesn't take into account the fact that there's now going to be um, carbon tax on, obviously, transportation that will go up. So that's going to increase food, uh, food prices. Um, one thing that's not talked a lot of, enough about is the fact that uh, municipalities, obviously, now are no longer going to be exempted from it. Mm-hmm. So that's gonna, that's going to especially large municipalities that have a large fleet, um, they're going to have uh, significant ex- increases in their expenses. Now, whether they're going to get a kickback at them through uh, through the fuel, whatever they call it, the, the gas tax or whatever, but and also interprovincial uh, aviation is now going to have carbon tax on it, which means you know flying from St. John's to Labrador is going to have that extra cost on on uh, aviation fuel. So, you know, but, but what's not talked about enough is the fact that July 1st as well, our electrical bills are going to go up by 6.9%. So that's also going to have an impact. But again, working out, working through the same math, the average that the average Newfoundlander and Labradorian household con- consumes, um, it's going to cost around $282 extra, that 6.9 cent. Uh, sorry, percent increase. Uh, anyway, so a bunch of data, but you know, the reality is that, yeah, it is. But the climate incentive action payment does mitigate for the average Newfoundland and Labradorian, uh, especially the ones who, because um, the poorer you are, generally the the smaller your carbon footprint is, and the the less fuel you generally consume. So the people who pay more, the people who have a higher, you know, have burn more oil or drive more, have more cars or travel more. Uh, you know, they will pay more. They won't get their money back. But if you're the average Newfoundlander and Labradorian, the uh, carbon taxes kind of a net will, will net out that you might even be a little bit further ahead. And there's a 10% bump for some rural parts of the province as well. I mean, people don't like the sound of it for a lot of reasons. So there's a lot of increases coming. There's a couple of little rebates coming as well. So there's whatever they call a grocery rebate is coming on the 5th of next month. But... The province also stands to lose about $113 million annually in revenue based on the carbon tax. But for individuals, uh, I think one of the key points you're making here is, as opposed to for four years, the province collected and kept the carbon tax money. Now you'll actually get some of it back. So for the average uh, average Newfoundland or Labradorian, 
whether or not you want to hear this, you are going to be better off with this particular plan because you're going to get some of the money back as opposed to trusting government to spend it where you need it spent, regardless of what that is inside schools or healthcare or whatever the case may be. So it feels like a big punitive play coming. And if you do, are one of the 40 plus thousand homes that use home heating fuels, there will be a big wallop coming to your bill, no doubt about it. I'm one of them. But for simply, say, gasoline usage or what have you, yes, it's going to come with transportation costs. Yes, municipalities are going to have a, a bigger energy bill to face uh, in the future, starting on the 1st of July. But for the average person, this is not as bad as people are painting it out to be for you. It's not going to be great for me, but it's going to be better for some. No doubt, you're going to get a rebate. Now, y- you're absolutely spot on when you say, being told what you want to hear is kind of getting a bit uh, intellectually lazy and basically intellectually dishonest. How many families of four are in a position where they're going to get the entirety of that 1300 bucks? Not a whole, whole lot. Not like it once was in the past. So anyway, I'll let you have the last word, Tom, before I go. Well, I just want to encourage people to realize that the price of energy is going up. It's not going to go down. So, you know, if you have any surplus money, if you can afford to take some of this money you're getting and invest in a bit of insulation or even go through Newfoundland Power with the Take Charge or Newfoundland Hydro with the Take Charge program or take advantage of the greener homes, whatever you can do, like sit down and figure it out and do some research. We have these great devices that we spend way too much time being distracted by, but there's a lot of information there. Just Google, like, how can I save money on my energy how can i you know make different choices and you know that's a solution i mean we're going you can see it you don't need a crystal ball to see where we're heading but we don't need to be that boiling frog who eventually just you know boils to death you know we can make different choices so i encourage everybody to do your research become educated and try your best to to thrive instead of you know struggle slowly boil to death take care everyone thanks Tom. bye-bye yeah. uh so no, there is a problem with the rebate though as well there are places in the country, notably in parts of Ontario, where they say quite simply, what they were told the rebate will be is not the rebate they're seeing. So that's another one of these moving targets here. In addition to the carbon tax increase, and on a litre of gasoline, we're going from 11 to 14 cents. With the implication of the clean fuel regulations, again, uh, it's just kind of gets on my nerves, the fact that we're going to talk about this and try to have all of these issues surrounding, try to have uh, fewer emissions in the fuels. The margins for the refineries has increased dramatically, went from uh, 10% in uh, 2019 to about 50% now, yet I'm going to shoulder all these clean fuel regulation issues? Absolute nonsense. There is an opportunity for the refineries and uh, part of that sector to actually do very well themselves, but we'll see if they want to put forward the effort versus simply make me pay the bill. The biggest problem with that regulation and the associated costs is no one can tell us what it is. I mean, it's just days away. So you would figure that the ministers responsible and the senior bureaucrats, we could have some sort of consensus of exactly what this is going to cost. The department says one thing, the parliamentary budget office says another, different politicians and different parties are using all these different numbers, which is infuriating. There's got to be hard and fast formula to tell me exactly what to expect on that one clean fuel regulation alone. We know what the carbon tax implications are going to be, but on the clean fuel, nope, we don't know. We're just depends on who you want to listen to to get whatever number. But that shouldn't be the way. There's got to be formula. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Tony wants to talk about the lack of apartments available. I assume that's in and around here. And the need for Ripple Pond to be cleaned up. Don't go away. 
Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Richard Didham. He's with the Salmon Air Conservation Trust. Uh, good morning, Richard. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Excellent. Good afternoon, whenever. It's morning here. Uh, welcome to the show. What's on your mind, Richard? Well, uh, we're concerned about the uh, Ripple Pond and uh, the protected area that you want to make that a protected area. Well, Paddy, I was a fishery officer here. I spent a good many years. And not only that, before we go there, my father and my brother, we operated a mill there at, uh, at Ripple Pond for a few years. And it was owned by a man from uh, Old Shop. His name was Alfred Cooper. He owned the mills, but we operated it. We also operated a mill down at Colnet Pond. And uh, Van Nosery, he was from Conception Bay, from Spaniards Bay. So uh, we operated his mill. So we have fellow from Trinity Bay and Conception Bay and St. Mary's Bay involved with that area, right? And it was logged, as you know, we had one of the biggest mills in, in uh, Atlantic Canada, Colnet, where I grew up. So uh, I would say millions, probably billions of board of feet came out of uh, feet of lumber came out of that forest. And the last man to operate a mill in Continent, Mr. Lina and Joseph Lina and Mr. Ernest and his sons, they operated there for years after the Seamus was closed down. Anyways, our main concern is the fact that that's now a fire hazard. And Patty, as sure as I'm talking to you, if it's not looked after, if it's not cleaned up, it's going up in flames. Hard, hard thing to say. And the people around the middle Gulf Pond and Ricky's Junction, all those areas around there, their cottages are not only the residents and cottages and so on, their lives are in danger. There's nobody right now on the island is physically fit to go fight a forest fire. If we had a fire on Salmon Air Island here right now, the people up at the depot right here by the deer park are not allowed to go put it out because they're not physically fit. So that's one uh, aspect of it. Uh, plus the bombers or the water bombers, they're uh, somewhere else. Yeah, there's okay. four active fires right now. Just one second, though, Richard. So the yeah, this is uh, the fire load is what remnants from the mill or is deadfall trees or what is it? No, it is well. What happened, see, Patty, years ago, there was everything was cut was selective cutting. Like if you went to the ridge, anything there would make two by three or strapping. Uh, from that up to two by twelve, whatever was taken out. But the remainder that was left, like, there was no clear cut. Well, they didn't have the means to do it for the start with no chainsaw. It was all all bucks on X, right? So now the state that uh, that's all on the ground now because it's over mature. It's all on the ground. It's just a fire hazard. It's uh, kindling. So here's what we got: we got kindling, we got the father to feed the father to feed the fire. All we need now is the spark. Just the three ingredients you need. Now, we already had a fire out in Branch this year, believe it or not, out into up the country in Branch. Now you know what woods is in Branch. So it extinguished itself, itself because it ran out of uh, fire, ran out of uh, material. So with this warm, with the climate changing and so on, uh, all the residents that from Markland, all around the from Trinity Bay, Conception Bay, there's, there's a danger here if that catches on fire, which it will. I'm predicting that that's going to go on fire. Uh, there's going to be some serious consequences. And somebody should be held accountable. I've, as a fishery officer, I've walked out that, I haunted it, I logged it, I trapped it, I fished it, and I know the country very, 
better than anyone out in Memorial University. There's probably anyone around on the aisle, the, the Avalon here, because they spent their lifetime uh, traveling that, that, that country. Not only me, but a lot of other people. Concern is, with the protected area, won't be allowed to go to Sigurd. You might be at Mayman may not be allowed to use an ATV trail, get back trails and so on. So I'm getting a lot of calls about it, saying, well, you should go on with Paddy Daly, you should go on with Paddy Daly, let them know. Well, I'm on with Paddy Daly now, and I'm letting them know. We'll see what, we'll see what comes out of it. But, but the thing is, Paddy, it, it is... Uh, and, and by the way, better thank you for now. If you're interested in coming in yourself and looking at this, I can be your guide. I'll show you what the mess... The danger that we're we're facing here is Ripple Pond just sort of not only there's all over the Avalon. I mean, the, the, the forest is destroyed. By, you know, it's, it's it's dangerous. It's got to the point that we get the fire going here. You're not going to stop it. You get the right wind. Look out. Is Ripple Pond by North River? No, Ripple Pond is, is the is, is not the headwaters of Conlet River. <clears throat> if you walk, if you leave Conlet and go up. Up Colnet River, for example, you'll come to Colnet Pond. Yep. That's the first place we had Samuel. Then you go off from that, and you come up to the to the Ripple Pond. It's a long. Uh, if you look at the little map that they put out, they didn't name the Ripple Pond. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's off to the left, up in the left-hand corner. There's a long pond there, and up at the head of that, we got what's called the Northern Branch and the Eastern Branch of the river, and that goes up in the, into into. Uh, uh, ocean pond there, up in that area, right? Okay. Almost, goes, almost goes to the Trans-Canada headwaters. And then below Colonel Pond, there's another river called the Back River. That that uh, that uh, water from that runs out, comes out of Big Pond, Red Island Pond, uh, Leaky Pond, a lot of big water shading there, an awful lot of water. And that flows into Colonel. So you got three major tributaries running into Colonel River. But the Ripple Pond, at the lower end of the Ripple Pond, we had a sawmill. At Colonel Pond, we had a sawmill. Well, we didn't have it, until from Trinity Bay and so on. And the remains are still there. The old slabs on that gear are still there. The old engine is still there at the uh, Colonel Pond, the mill engine. But that's our main concern, is if you make this a, a, a protective area, and after it's made a protective area, then comes the conditions. You can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do something else. Something else. Does that include not... But the main thing now, this should be cleaned up and then look at protecting it. So if it was protected before the cleanup, does that mean you can't go in and clean up something in a protected area? Exactly. Exactly. Really? The, Na- the Nature Conservancy got this land bought across from here from Prague. You cannot cut a stick on it. You hardly, and if, you, if there's something over that you shouldn't walk on that's grown, uh, well, you know, a lot of work on it. So that's how that's how that's how bad these these people can get. You can't do this and you can't do that. No, you can't clean cleaned up. To clean that up you're going to have to take in machinery. If you come in, if you've got the time to come in, you want to come in, I'll show you areas that are clear cut and is cleaned up and is replanted. And I'll show you the difference. And and, and young growth, young trees that do not burn. And you only get to look at, I remember Mary Presswords, which she, I'll, I'll tell you later on. Anyways, she came from New Brunswick. Do you hear telephones in New Brunswick? Do you hear telephones in Nova Scotia? Yes, they had one after the hurricane, put everything on the ground as far as this year. That's because of the hurricane caused that the material was on the ground. They had fire, stuff to burn. 
and uh, and uh, Maine, uh, no forest fires, because Casey Irving maintains the forests and looks after them. Mary Pratt, for example, I was down to her about 50 years ago, about 40, 50 years ago. So Mr. Leslie Tuck, Dr. Leslie Tuck was there. Oh, I knew him, and we were having a chat. So Mary came out in the, Mrs. Mary came out in the room, and she's looking across the pond there. And she said her words, and she was a very elegant woman, very nice lady, but she had a queen-like tone to her voice, right? She said, my God, I wish Christopher had come up here and ask and have them, them oh, I'm sorry, I wish Christopher would ask the men from Mount Carmel to come up here and clean up that god-awful, dreadful mess over there. And she was talking about the land that the NCC bought. We've had Andrew yeah. Holland from NCC yeah. on. I, I guess that's from, four, that's from three years ago. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. Um, I guess we'll have to follow up with him about clean up protocols after an area is protected. Who should be responsible? Whether or not can be done. I'm, I've been in Safaris Colonnet Pond. Give yeah. us an idea what kind of landmass we're talking about that needs to be cleaned up in whether it be Colonnet Pond or up in Ripple Pond. No, you can go out of it by right from Colonnet Pond right on up, even below Colonnet, but right down to Colonnet. Oh, that was like that. That was how it was. Millions of board feet came out of that. And and it was never replanted. They just left left there. Now the old stuff that was left over, the small trees and everything, they grew, they stayed alive for so long. Now they're dead. That's underground. You when put you, you have to see. That's from just avoided you. You don't want to come. It's okay. But the thing is, you have to see with your own eyes. Those people from the Morley University never stepped foot on that. They looked at a map. Oh, this area needs protection. Yeah, right. Go in and look at it. I think the Premier and his minister should get aboard a helicopter and fly over it. And you'll see for yourself what it's like. There's a fire hazard. They're playing with fire. This is not, this, this is, they are playing with fire and don't know it. That's the trouble. Go in and look at it. Well, I mean, fire prevention is more than, you know, encouraging people not to be uh, reckless with their campfires or their cigarettes or what have you. Because when I lived in Jasper, working in the National Park, for a couple of summers straight, that was my job. It was in, in part of a crew clearing fire load. So all the yeah. deadfall and all the remnants, yeah. of whether it be any uh, activity, regardless of what it was, that's all we did was clear fire load the whole summer, yeah, that, two straight. Isn't exactly what I'm saying? It needs to be cleaned up. I understood. We, we need we need people. We need, look, you get a contractor to go in and take in the equipment, clean it up, replant it, and there's areas you believe that come back to the redo on its own. And then the plant is bad. You have to see. That's why I invite Dean. And I encourage the and the Premier get aboard a helicopter. If you can get aboard a plane and fly over to Dublin to go over to the to the to look for doctors and and go to the, the I forget what's anyways. Uh, you, you can get aboard a plane with a few thousand dollars. Go in and look at that for yourselves, because somebody should when they catch us on fire and it's going to catch on fire. The shores. I'm talking to you. Somebody should be held accountable. Go in and look at it. That doesn't, that's no big deal. Go in and look at it for yourself. See it. And by the way, you're invited to come down. Come on down, and I'll pick you up at the, at the uh, near Park Road if you want. We, we should start there. 
And you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed the state that the forest is in. By the way, you said you're coming down to St. Mary's Bay soon. When you come to the what they call the Back River Hills, coming down over there, look up to your right, right there by St. Catherine's Academy, mm-hmm. and look at that. Oh, I've seen and that. When you're, looking at, when you're looking at that, you say, you can think about it. That's what they call it, which is like. It's like a forest fire went through it. I took the Nature Conservancy people up there about five years ago when it was getting bad. So we took them up. We also had a fellow there named John Gass. He was the expert. And anyway, he claimed that moose did all the damage. Yeah, well, you're seeing out his words. Moose did got it all killed. And uh, showed him that. Well, Paddy, if you side then and side now, it'll blow your mind. Just watch a while. Make sure if you come down, you pay attention to it. When, when we open up St. Catherine's Academy, look up to your right. And you'll see a place that you think a forest fire went through it already. We're just waiting for a forest fire because Mother Nature to clean that up. She, she's not, she can be very nasty when it comes to the fires, but that's what's going to clean it up. And it'll be like 200 years before it comes back. Richard, I'll tell you what, when I when I try to find time to make my way up that uh, neck of the woods again, I will indeed reach out to you. I'm familiar exactly with what you uh, talked about, the scar on top of uh, St. Catherine's Academy. I, I know exactly yep. what you're talking about there. But insofar as yep. between Colnet Lake uh, Pond and up to Ripple Pond, I don't think I've ever even walked in that backwoods. But when I get a chance to make my way out to St. Mary's Bay, whether it be St. Vincent's or otherwise, I will oh, try yeah. to make time for you. I'd be proud and glad to have you come along with me, and we can take our time. And uh, I'd like to take you over across the river here to show you the damage that the uh, yellow birch have done to it over here. They're very invasive trees, but you'd have to see it. Uh, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing what they got done to it. That was cut out 42 years ago in the forest as priprops, the spruce and fir, and shipped over to England, as you know, as priprops for the... For, for the for the basements and the mines, so they wouldn't be wouldn't be caving in on them when the bombs of Germany were dropping on them. Anyways, uh, now, Paddy, uh, you'd have to see it. If you come in, it's only about twenty minutes. We'll get over and I'll show you. I appreciate you bringing it forward here. So two things. I'll absolutely try to take you up on that kind invitation. We will get the NCC on to talk about cleanup and what their role should be inside a protected area. Because one thing to protect the flora and the fiking or lichen, but yes. it's quite another for it to just perish in a fire that could be avoided. Uh, I'll do that much for sure. Daddy, those people uh, around uh, Middle Gulf Band and Mars and Biggest Junction, that when it got those, I'm not saying if, I'm saying that when this catches on fire, the, all the, look, it's, it's, everything is gone. I'm telling you, uh, with a fire, you can't stay ahead of a fire if we have to get the right winds. And we're not here to July and August yet, and we already had a fire at branch, branch country, away from the road. No no people around. Right? Cut fire with sticks rubbing together or a piece of glass or something set on fire. Now, can you imagine that? That was just about two weeks ago. Right. Richard, I appreciate well, the time. I've got your number. We're dealing with. Well, okay, my friend. Well, uh, thanks for taking this, taking the call. I appreciate uh, the time. Yeah, and uh, anyway, if you get to drive, drop in, and we'll have a good chat ourselves. Thank you, Richard. Okay, buddy. Take care. You All too. The you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that paints a pretty bleak picture. So, David, that's what we should do. We should get the department and Andrew Holland at NCC, the Nature Conservancy of Canada, because it's one thing to protect an area, but if that prohibits some realistic and pragmatic 
fire prevention cleanup, then there's a problem there. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Tony's still in the queue to talk about the lack of apartments. And Andrew Williams, he's with Second Harvest. We've had some discussion with Second Harvest in the past. Important organization. We'll hear from Andrew after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Tony, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? Not bad. Um, I was given a a eviction notice in December. I was supposed to be out by the end of March. And now it's almost the end of June. And I've been trying ever since December to find an apartment, but as soon as it comes available, they're gone. And I don't know what to do. I I mean, I'm I'm all packed up. And like I said, and... The landlord, he wants me out, but he he been good because I'm here extra three months when I'm supposed to be out, right? So I don't know what to do, Patty. Why are you being evicted? Uh, because uh, the uh, the owner is selling the house, and they have to they have to come in here and do some work. I'm living in a house that's full of mold and lots of dampness. I got a sick wife, and I'm not the best. And so, anyway, I'm I suppose be out anyway, and uh, I was wondering anyone out there that knows if there's any apartments is on the go. What kind of apartment do you need? Um, two bedroom. It would be good, but I I I will take one if right. Okay. Because we do indeed. Uh deal with a couple of uh, rental agencies they're usually pretty quick to react especially when it's something like you know a one bedroom or a two bedroom and people are having immediate needs so if they hear our, if they're listening to the show right now and they generally are they very quickly reach out to us if they say they've got anything available we'll give you a shout and uh, share a number with you boy it'd be great i appreciate that very much okay let's see what i can do thank you very much you're boy. welcome tony you have have a good day. Bye-bye. bye-bye yeah there's a couple of uh Property management companies, uh, a couple of the fellas at the helm of those, listen, and every time we get a rental plea call, generally speaking, we're able to help try to sort folks out. All right, let's go. Line number two, say good morning to the head of operations for Newfoundland and Labrador at Second Harvest. That's Andrew Williams. Andrew, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, part of the preamble this morning was talk about the fact that there will be some school-aged children that will go without because they don't have the opportunity to use the School Lunch Association or Kids Eat Smart. And then I went on to look at food waste in the country. And it's absolutely remarkable. The numbers that you're using on your website, a little bit different than the numbers that I saw from uh, National Zero Waste Council, but let's just say between 58 and 63% of food that can be eaten in this country is thrown away. It's mind-boggling when you juxtapose that with the fact that there's 5.5 million Canadians who are food insecure. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem, and it's, it's one that's kind of hard to wrap your head around to be honest with you and the numbers are, are shocking like when we say 58 percent you know 63 percent we're talking uh, tens of millions of tons of food that's being sent to landfill right and not all of it is bad where we never want to pretend that food doesn't go bad and that some food you know passes it's uh, it's it's safe to eat life will say but there's so much of the food that's being wasted right now that that could be used by people in our neighborhood, in our communities that, you know, are really struggling with the rising cost of food. So the numbers you use there, the tens of millions of tons of food, is that, that includes households and businesses right across the board, does it? That's a picture in its entirety. Absolutely. That's the, the entire food value chain. 
Uh, if anyone's interested, uh, Second Harvest has actually uh, done some excellent research uh, combined with Value Chain Management International. Um, the one we're referring to now is called The Avoidable Crisis of Food Waste. Uh, we released it in 2019, and you can find all that information online, uh, secondharvest.ca, and it breaks it down by, uh, by sector, right from production and distribution to you know retail and consumption at the home. So what what are we thinking are some of the contributing factors? I have my own thoughts, but you're working hand in glove with it. So what are we looking at as some of the root causes as to why so much edible food is hitting the landfill? Well, there's there's a lot of kind of angles to, to consider there, especially uh, where we're talking from. I'm in St. John's, and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador have some of uh, some of the most challenging food logistics in the country from, from what I've learned. But... Um, Aside from the the kind of higher level logistic challenges, which I'd be more than happy to talk about, um, there's also some some perceptual challenges. We'll say uh, mostly based around the idea of best before dates, right? Absolutely. So when people hear best before, the unspoken implication is bad after, right? So that's not true, and it's it's not the case. Best before dates are are in actuality, not even really regulated. They're, they're more of like a, a manufacturer's uh, statement on perceived quality, right? So this is what the manufacturer thinks it would be best if you eat it before now, right? But food safety obviously takes in many of the other things into consideration. Um, and when we're talking about uh, these best before dates as well, uh, I know it varies by retailer, but... Um, most retailers have uh, policies in place where they technically can't sell items that are nearing their best before date, right? So whether it's a couple days or, as I said, it, it does vary by retailer. But that food, if it's unsellable and there's no plan in place, the you know standard business model is that goes to landfill, right? So that's where Second Harvest comes in. We, we, we really work as a, a safety net. For businesses to prevent that from happening because we know no business especially in 2023 wants that food to go to waste and uh, we don't want it to go to waste either we don't want it to be uh, if, if it can be sold sell it if you can sell it at a discount sell it great really good the only thing that's not good is good food going to landfill so if everything else doesn't work you can't sell your food um, we have a couple options. You can either just give me a call or shoot me an email, and I'll more than happy to kind of uh, broker out uh, surplus to our more than 100 non-for-profit uh, partners now, uh, based in 25 municipalities across the province. So we're slowly growing and uh, increasing the uh, the reach of our safety net. But uh, we also have a, a free app that uh, is really, really accessible and has been proven really valuable. Uh, we've got over 150 uh, business donor locations at the moment across the province, up into Labrador. And between them, they've actually rescued more than 600,000 pounds of edible food just through the app. And again, that has nothing to do with me. This is fully autonomous. This is donors talking to local food banks through our free software and managing their, their surplus donations that way. So it really helps businesses uh, have eyes on what's happening around them, and it's a really 
accessible way to kind of offer some support while reducing your own uh, food waste. It's obviously important relationships being brokered here. I wonder what, and you mentioned some other high-level issues that you'd be more than happy to talk about, and I'll get you to do that now in a second. You know, I wonder if we kind of trick ourselves as shoppers sometimes, too. Not only the best before date, which I find to be really irritating and a sort of a dishonest play by the industry when they do, do, do it the way they do it, but when we bulk buy stuff, you know, whether it be from the Price Club or the Walmarts or the two-for-one or the three-for-two specials that you see, it feels good to pretend you're saving money, but by the time you get around to consuming the entirety of whatever product it is, it's hit that best before date. Or it doesn't look or smell as good as it once did when you first bought it at the store. I think we maybe set ourselves up sometimes as well. Exactly right. Shooting ourselves in the foot, pretty much. And I'm definitely guilty of it. Me too. Because you see something on bulk for sale, and you don't see the cost or the potential waste. You see value, right? So um, it does boil down to uh, a little bit of, I'm not sure the word to use, but like lifestyle management. If you know how you eat, it's kind of easier to manage those kind of purchases. And it also helps that if you if you uh, kind of keep stock, if you know what you have, as opposed to just buying the things that are on sale that you don't necessarily need, right? So uh, we do have, uh, we'll say, a, a need to kind of better know ourselves so that we can avoid shooting ourselves in the foot when we're at the grocery store. I see people going with these bags of grapes that are just massive. You think you were operating a cruise line or something, but maybe they eat them all. I don't know. But I think it's we do trick ourselves into value versus what we can realistically consume inside the house. So you mentioned some of the high level. Actually, before we get to that, when it comes to the big grocery retailers, I know in some parts of the country they actually have formalized relations. Uh, I think some of it's even legislated about the uh, inability to throw away food as opposed to find a home for it, whether it be with a food bank or the Community Food Sharing Association or Second Harvest. Is that what we're talking about, just formalizing the relationship as opposed to making it uh, available to a business or available to a grocery store to be more mindful of what, could, what gets thrown out? Yeah, we, we actually do a lot of... Uh Workshops, education, both with, um, you know, the general public, with recipient agencies, and with donors as well, so that we can give that confidence and the information so that, because I can't fault uh, food businesses for not wanting to donate something they think is bad, right? So, you know, they can't be faulted for that. They don't want to make anyone sick, and it's as simple as that. So what we do is we spend a lot of time kind of uh, going through some of the the timelines of um, what different food categories are, are how they hold up, we'll say, near their best before dates, and which don't, right? Because some meats and other things like that, you you know, there's there's really not that much wiggle room. But other things, uh, the shelf-stable things, uh, if they're uh, stored and, you know, transported and handled properly – they could be good up to six months after their posted best before date, right? So we do a lot of work with donors to help them understand what is safe as opposed to uh, what isn't. And we work with donors to help them understand the same thing. So that if they get uh, an item that may be nearing its best before date, they know that doesn't mean they're getting bad food. They're just getting something that's nearing its quote-unquote highest quality life. 
How do you manage the logistics of getting that food from a business, a grocery store, or otherwise to any of these not-for-profits or food banks? Uh, the majority of it is actually managed by the uh, nonprofits themselves. Like I said, the app is is pretty autonomous. Um, a food business signs up for free, and if they happen to have surplus on any given day, they'll uh, they'll post it in the app, and they can choose to either target a specific donation if they have a relationship with them, or they can post it just to the network as a whole. And uh, in that posted donation, there'll be information about what items they have, as well as the pickup window. So where they are, when is a good time to come pick it up, um, what uh, handling equipment, transportation uh, materials they might need. If it's, uh, you know, refrigerated, they might need a cooler bag or things like that. So all that information is communicated to the recipients. And if they can manage it, they'll claim it and pick it up at the given time. Now, for larger donations, which this gets closer to the higher-level logistics I was talking about, uh, it's a bit more hands-on for myself because um, Newfoundland has a very inefficient uh, logistics system, right? And inventory is something that's required to kind of cover up those long lead times, right? So if we sell out of, you know, a certain product today, we can't just get a refill ordered in from the mainland and have it tomorrow. It takes time, mm -hmm. right? So we need to carry lots of inventory, and that applies to food. So there's times when, through no fault of anybody's, weather just decides it's going to do something, there'll be really large quantities of surplus that are actually not manageable by any given organization. So if it was posted for a specific organization, you know, they might be able to take a fraction of it. Right, and the same with every other group in the area. So what we try to do is, uh, well, I'll take that on for the for the donors, so they don't have to kind of, you know, spend a lot of time finding a home for their food. I'll make the calls to our partners, figure out who can take what, kind of coordinate the logistics there if necessary. Um, I've had some great uh, relationships with some local trucking companies who have been more than happy to volunteer a refrigerated truck or. A truck to kind of do the the moving we've done distributions out of the back of a truck in the uh, village mall parking lot during a snowstorm because you got to do what you got to do to make sure the food doesn't go to waste and uh, cfsa has just been incredible in that regard too because they've they've got such a a good network and great infrastructure they've been really able able to kind of act as that hub yeah, the Community Food Sharing Association, that's that acronym, if people didn't catch it. Uh, Andrew, keep up the good work. Really appreciate making time for the show. We'll touch base uh, in a more frequent basis because this concept of millions of tons of food in the landfill that is edible and the cost, whether it be $20 billion annually, just when we talk about uh, residential food waste, uh, then incorporate the business issue. And this is something that, you know, we mobilize governments at times of crisis. But they haven't been able to recognize food insecurity as a crisis, which it absolutely most certainly is right across the country. Appreciate the time this morning, Andrew. Thank you, Patty, for taking the time to chat. Take good care of yourself. You as well. Bye-bye. That's Andrew Williams. He's the head of operations of our Second Harvest. Good group there. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Joyce has got an issue with a big box store. Okay, don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Joyce, you are on the air. 
Hi, Patty Me Boy. How are you? Okay, how about you? Oh, contrary and stressed to death. I am um, dealing with a big box store for years now, and I have their MasterCard. And recently I got a bill come in from them saying I owed them 800 and so much dollars, which I didn't. And my dog is acting up. She hears me talking. Um, anyways, I found the bills to confirm that I, I do my banking on phone. So I found the bills, and I got this fella on the phone, and he said, oh, he'd take out $415. Be good. And uh, anyway, he did that for me, and he said, it'll be cleared up when you get your next bill. Well, I got another bill, and it's saying I have installment plans, which is something I never, ever had, and I always pay extra, Patty. And I don't owe them any large amounts. And I got another bill saying I have an installment plan for six months, and I owe them $202.80, and I don't owe that. I thought I shredded all my bills. I went to the store yesterday to talk to the lady. And she said, get them to send out all your bills. But I thought I'd shred up my bills. And last evening, I started going through my bills. And lo and behold, I found all the bills I need to prove that it's paid. And I'm talking to this lady on the phone yesterday. From Can I say the name of the store? I don't know what you need to do that for. But Joyce, what's the bill for? It's for anything you charge at this store on your MasterCard. And then I use my debit to pay it off right away. To get my points, right? Wouldn't MasterCard have a record of what you spent? Well, they should. Right. But I have all the information in front of me, and I phoned in again this morning. The lady at um, the big box store gave me the phone number, a different number, and lo and behold, I ended up with the same lady I had yesterday. She picked up the phone. They said the call was going through, and it'd be recorded. And I got the same one I was talking to yesterday, and she picked up the phone, and I said what I had to say, and she put it over to a survey, like how how pleased are you with your service, and how this, of course, I pressed one for everything, because I'm far from pleased, and I'm stressed to death with this, and I can't get any action. Okay, I'm confused. So I thought I'll have to go to the talk show, because... Who else, I'm a senior, who else are they doing this to? I didn't even know what it was. And when I saw 800 and something on a bill I had there last month, I thought, i got to call in and see what this is all about. Yeah, but so hold on a second, though, Joyce. I, I, I'll admit to being confused. You're telling me the box store sends you a bill? Like, if I go and use my credit card to shop, I get my bill from my credit card company, not from well, where I shopped from. Well, I do this online, so I get their MasterCard bill comes in every month, right, to show what I what I put on my card and what I paid. Yeah. Okay? So I have all the proof of what I paid, and they're saying I owed them from, like, December of 2022 right up to May 13th. I mean, I have all the bills showing because as soon as I – charge something on my MasterCard, I use my debit right away to pay it off. So it's not like I owed them anything. I owed them a small amount, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, but I certainly don't owe them the money they're saying. And I had no installment plan, 
And when I was in the store last time buying things, I canceled the installment plan. And I told them I never had an installment plan. So one gentleman on the phone, he fixed it up and gave me back 400 and something dollars. But in the next breath on the other bill, is saying I owe him an installment plan from, uh, uh, it says, which is crazy, it says, from April 19th to May 16th of 2023, I owed him $202. And I don't owe them that. So So I'm wondering who else are they doing this to? And, I mean, they make billions doing this to people because they're a very popular store on Murphy Square. And everybody shops there, and I guess you know who I'm talking about. So I'm in a bad dilemma because this lady who's working there, when I phone in, she won't answer. She picks up the phone and she won't answer. I wasn't ignorant to her at all. I told her, I said, you don't understand. I never had an installment plan, so where's this coming from? What did you call MasterCard? Uh, well, that's who I'm calling. So, I mean, I, I don't get it. If you use your MasterCard, doesn't matter if it's used at the box store or at Canadian Tire or Costco, I think we're probably talking about, or Canadian Tire or at a restaurant I'm or at the gas I'm station. I'm not talking about Costco. Okay. Believe me, I'm not. I'm in corner... Look, I'm outside Corner Book, Patty. Okay, I don't know what store you're talking about. Well, I can tell you. Sure, go ahead, quick. Walmart. Okay, Walmart. So it doesn't matter where you use your credit card. The credit card company sends you a bill. They record whether or not you've made a payment, which you absolutely should be able to prove because you also have debit card records. Rewards MasterCard. It tells you how many points you got, what you paid, (laughs) and it shows you what you bought. Yeah. So and then it says your payment due date and amount you owe, and of course I always pay extra, Patty. If I owe four hundred, I'll pay one fifty or two hundred. I mean, I don't need this stress, and I'm not getting anywhere with this lady when I call in because she should be able to talk to me, and she's not doing it. She just put me over to a survey, which doesn't make sense. She just doesn't want to speak to me, so I don't know. How to go about getting this done because your hands are tied. And like I said, they might be doing this to thousands and thousands of people because a lot of people shop there. And I tried everything not to have the phone you, but I thought, well, if I got to, I'll have to go to Patty because you get... uh, you get action done. <laughs> I don't know where we can start with a company like MasterCard or Walmart, which are two behemoths, but I don't really understand yeah, how this is. Yeah, but it's Walmart's MasterCard. It's by Walmart. Yeah, it's still just a, a partnership with MasterCard, though. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the time, Joyce. I don't know if Walmart will respond to me, but we'll ask them. Well, I would appreciate it because this okay. is a lot of stress. I feel like going to a lawyer, and if you win a case, you don't uh they go for it and if you if they win the case fine but if they don't you don't have the pay right understood Pardon? we will send a note off to the walmarts of the world to see if they can help explain what your predicament is not your specific uh concern but how they can't be easily reconciled about how much someone spent on their credit card, how mm-hmm. much they paid it off with their debit card. Both yeah. companies, whether it be from the Royal Bank or BMO or whoever, they have distinct records of how much you used your debit card to do whatever you do. I have all the bills okay. here, Patty. 
showing it. I always pay. Always. Understood. I have good credit, excellent credit, actually. Well, that's also a very good thing. Uh, Joyce, I appreciate the time. I'll see if I can figure it out because at this moment, a uh, little bit confused. Well, anyway, don't be confused. I'm confused, too, because of the stupidity of these places trying to rip people off. You take good care, Joyce. Good luck. You too, and thanks, Patty. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Here we go. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, Jonathan's there to talk about food insecurity. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Jonathan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, listen to your show quite frequently, and uh, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people talking about, you know, uh, food, people are starving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I worked at the hospitals for quite some time and uh, in the dietary department that prepares the meals to go out to the patients and stuff in the run of the day. Mm-hmm. That all comes in. That's all already prepared and comes in by contractor. You know, at the end of the day, that I could feed about 60 people that are hungry at the end of the day. There's no reason for people to be hungry because all this food goes in the garbage. All the food trays that be prepared by contracting and it's all contracted out by a different company. At the end of the day, if the food tray goes to a patient's room with, and that patient got released two hours beforehand, that entire tray goes in the garbage. And there's no need for this. This has been going on. I, I, I don't mind saying it now because it doesn't work there no more, but I've been holding this for so long now since the pandemic and uh, saying, like, i really like to be able to tell somebody about this. This is absolutely crazy. Like, why can't somebody in government, politicians, or et cetera, whoever looks after this stuff, come in and spend one day and see how much food actually gets wasted away? Sure, but it's a little bit of a different situation because you're, of course, talking about food that's already been prepared. So for someone to be able to eat that as opposed to it going in the garbage, you'd have to have a captive audience at the hospital who are waiting for whatever trays are not being eaten to go ahead and eat or however someone, one patient picked out a part of a tray or another. So it's a little bit different when we talk about food that gets thrown out from your home because, you know, the best before date or you don't think the carrot looks good anymore or what have you because you're talking about prepared food, right? Yes, it comes in. Like, I've eaten it myself, Patty, like in the run of a day and like there's like the sealed and it's a microwavable thing in the center that you put it in the microwave and heat up and it comes to your room prepared. Right down to juice packets, milks, cartons of milks, all this. At the end of the day, if there's 10 patients that have gotten released in the last hour, that's 10 meals that just goes in the garbage. Milk, butter, tea bags, coffee, food, whatever is on that tray, whatever that person ordered for that meal, gone in the garbage. And when I think about it, there's so many people out there, like we talk about every day, that are hungry and hungry. But technically, our government is throwing away more money in food than they're actually helping people to, to survive with. It's, it's crazy. If somebody really investigated it, they would understand where I'm coming from. For, from someone that worked there for three years, preparing these meals and delivering them to the rooms and taking orders from people, Right down to those insured drinks and stuff like that that is highly expensive. Garbage, Patty, garbage. I've carried bags of food to the dumpster that I can barely lift. And unopened food, juice packs, whatever you can put on a tray, damn, garbage. So 
It's just my thoughts of just putting it out there. Fair maybe enough. somebody in politicians, maybe somebody should think about it. Like, there's not only just food in wastage. We talked about our health care falling apart in pieces on a run of a daily basis. you got to go in and see the wastage. Employees just don't care, Patty. The, the, the garbage bags, just regular garbage bags for a janitor. There'd be hundreds and hundreds of them just thrown away in the garbage per day. Don't even be used. It's crazy. If someone paid attention to the hospital waste, we wouldn't be doing without what we're doing without today. There's too much waste. Employees are not caring enough. And I would never talk about it because I work there, but I don't work there no more. And I think it's time for it to get put out in the universe for people to start thinking, like, how come it's costing so much for us to have health care? Because is more wastage going on in healthcare than it is actually providing healthcare. So that's just my little pot for this morning to uh, throw it out in the universe because I hear sell of hungry people every day and I know these hungry people could be fed every day. There's certainly a lot to be said for how much food is wasted and you compare it to the number of Canadians that are are hungry. I mean, if there's somewhere like five and a half million Canadians, they are fully reliant on the food bank, and yet we're throwing away tens of millions of tons of food that could be eaten. There's a absolute mismatch there of, of facts. Jonathan, I appreciate you making time for the show. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Patty. You have a nice day now. You, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, it's not really quite something. You know, how can both things exist at the same time? So a way to settle or solve, and I guess organizations like Andrew Williams and the crowd at Second Harvest, the Community Food Sharing Association, Big Business, and that, that app that he mentioned, I'm going to have to check that out, see just how that is working and what kind of impact it's making. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still have plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Marilyn Faulkner. You're on the air. Oh, good morning. How you doing, Patty? Not too bad, thanks. How you doing? Oh, good, good. Uh, just wanted to uh, call and say congratulations to the nine Newfoundland females that are off to Chechia this morning to play in the uh, Canadian ball hockey. I've got a picture that you sent along to somebody. Uh, I'm not sure who it was, but I have a picture of all nine proudly wearing their Team Canada garb, getting yep. ready to head to the Worlds. Yes, they are. Terrific. Uh, anyone belong to you, part yes. of the nine? Yes, Renee Faulkner is there. She's on the uh, far left. Yep. Terrific. Uh, do you happen to know the names of the others? I'd love to give them all a shout-out. Oh, absolutely. So we have Renee on the far left. Next to her is Ashley Haley, Julia Butler, Allison Thomas, Maggie Jones, Jamie Guy, Brooke Lannon, Cassie Drover, and Jenny Simpson. Terrific, and good luck and safe travels to all nine, and of course the entire Team Canada team heading to Chechia to play in the under-21s. So when it comes to selecting these teams, are there any camps or do you simply have people out there who know the players and they go ahead and make selections? Uh, no, so these these girls um, actually all um, act, well, except Allison Thomas. So all these girls played with Team NL uh, last summer, and they came home with gold. Mm -hmm. uh, so they did have scouts up there scouting out these girls um, that were chosen then for Team Canada. Are many of these ball hockey players uh, ice hockey players as well? Uh, I do believe the majority of them are. Yes. Yeah. 
It's amazing. Look, if people want to stand back and look at the numbers of Newfoundlanders who have played on the international stage representing Team Canada in ball hockey, it's amazing. It truly, it truly is. The amount of Newfoundlanders that's gone over this year is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and some guys I know on the men's side, there's guys that have been playing for Team Canada for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah, it, it truly is, and it's amazing for the Newfoundlanders to get recognized across Canada as well. I agree. So inside of playing for Team NL at national competitions, what kind of leagues do the girls play in uh, throughout the summer, say, for instance, to be as good as they need to be to represent their country? Uh, well, they, I know for Renee in particular, they started at high school. So it's a, it's a spring, very quick season for high school playing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after that, they have a Metro League. I know for the summer, it's the Metro League here in St. John's, uh, Metro Minor Ball Hockey. Um, and then after that, it's uh, used to be game on and or play on that they would play out on the street there on Old Placenta Road. Yeah. Um, and then from that, they... They have the provincials that's hosted here by uh, uh, Ball Hockey NL that's being hosted in July. And then this year, the actual nationals are here in St. John's. Oh, that's right. I actually knew that. Yeah. 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 So. Wonderful stuff. So how come you're not going? Oh, I'm going tomorrow. Oh, not tomorrow. Sorry, on Thursday. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> yeah. We don't travel with the team. The parents normally don't travel with the team. I'm traveling on Thursday. So it's going to be an awesome experience for everyone. When does the tournament start? Uh, the girls actually start the third, but I do believe the men start tomorrow over there. Is the men's a U21 as well? Because I know the, uh, the uh, 35, the Masters, were also in Chechia recently. Uh, there are uh, U16s, U18s, U20s, and men's over there as well as the U21 females. Now, are you one of the famous Faulkner hockey family? Um, there are. There, it is in the blood, <laughs> um, but I married into the family, so there you go. <laughs> Terrific. Listen, well, yeah. congratulations to all hands involved, especially the non-Newfoundlanders and Labradorians playing for Team Canada at the U21s. I hope you have a great time, Marilyn, and uh, safe travels. Thank when you, you get so back, either you touch base or have one of the girls call us. Oh, most definitely will. Thanks so much, Patty. Go get the gold. Yeah, will do. Thanks, Marilyn. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. Imagine nine of the team from here. <laughs> Pretty cool. Uh, let's go to line number one. Chris, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you this morning? Not bad at all. How about you? Oh, once I get these transplants in, I think I'll be a lot better off and get out of this, this plant and weather we've had this spring. I tell you, it's been pretty gross. So <laughs> you sound like a farmer. Yeah, that's what they call me. Yeah, and bishops, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's been a uh, yeah, tough start to ahead. the season. Tough start to the season, eh? Oh, man, I've ne- I'm 25 years. I got to say, you know, you see it come and go, but nothing like this. I mean, we, we I mean, we live in God's country, not like at your way where you get rangers on frogs a lot of the spring, but we get pretty good weather in here, right? So, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, I tell you, it's, uh, the first day was the the only day we had all money that was talking about. It. And uh, yeah, everybody's having a little fun. The, the Wooddale crowd with the um, the tree, the nursery, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's been an uphill battle. I can tell you. 
Yeah, keep stuff in the ground and get it going. Yeah, and when you say transplants, is that part of the provincial program? Those yeah, transplants? yeah, that's part. Okay. Yeah, that's part. Yeah, we're all most of the farmers are taking advantage of that, which is I can't even. I'll tell you, and uh, you know, it's unreal. It's an awesome program, and we hope to it keeps going for sure, right? But but like anything else, I mean, you you know, like a lot of the older farmers, yeah, they probably seen it come and go. But when you're starting off, and you know, like nothing in Swooddale or anything, but when you're just getting going. And then you got a year like this, boy, oh boy, you you know, there's there's a, there's a big science to it, right? Whether you got to try to keep the fertilizer or whatever is on the go, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. But anyway, the reason I called this morning because I really like your food safety uh, issue, and uh, sometimes I find that we get caught up in food safety and food security a little bit, um, and that causes you know a, a lot of issues, right? Such as, what do you mean by that? Well, like sometimes we're worried about like how safe the food is, and and that kind of catches up to food security, because like I said, we don't have a lot of food on the island being produced, as you know, right? You I hear you talk about it quite often, and but sometimes we get caught up in how safe that food is. You know what I'm saying? And and it is safe, but you know what I'm saying? The the the, the powers above or the big stores or whatever get caught up in that and and like i said i'm here now this morning putting in twenty thousand transplants in one acre i mean seems like a lot of food right right it, it does but uh, just yeah. to be clear do you you hear me talking about the fact that local produce might not be safe i don't think so no 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 that's not what i mean no no oh. what i'm saying to you is like sometimes big grocery stores they're worried about how safe it is and not the security of it. Like we just talked to the guy that just was on about the hospital. Oh, okay. Right? You yeah. know what I'm saying? I'm yes. not saying that you're saying that. I say sometimes that food is practically awesomely safe, no doubt. But is the hospital willing to take a chance on it? You know what I'm saying? I do. Or a grocery store or whatever, you know. And sometimes we get caught up in that. But, but like, I'm out here now this morning, and like I just said to you, we're putting our transplants in, getting our going or whatever. I mean, we would scare the guy from Second Harvest to see what's left on the field. <laughs> right? I mean, it would just scare somebody, right? Because you can't find a home for it? Not so much that you can't find a home for it, but it, like it may, like and if it's over seven inches, it can't be sold. Right? The bigger stores. Now, I don't sell to the box stores, so I don't have any worries. So I'm not worried about what they think or whatever. But I mean, anything over seven inches. That can't go in. That won't go into your local grocery store. Very seldom. Uh, what what kind of uh, produce are we talking about here? When we talk seven inches, seven okay. inches of what? Oh, well, oh, sorry, turnip. Let's use a rutabaga for instance. Okay. Turnip, right. Yeah. Okay. So if he's over inches, the more likely the bigger box stores are not going to take them because they can't sell it. But I always laugh because if I'm on the side of the road and a, and a lady says to me, oh, that's too big for me, I can't buy that. Well, I say, well, here's my knife. I'll cut it down the middle and put it in your fridge and cover it up, you know. <laughs> but a lot of times, like I said, stuff like that gets thrown away because it might have a blemish or it's not a – well, actually, it's not Canada grade A because that's what they're looking for is Canada grade A. And is Canada Grade A simply about size, if we're talking about a rotabaga? Well, it's not only about size. It has to look like it has to have that roundness to it and, 
you know, and I always laugh because if you look in March when we get desperate for rutabaga or turnip, I'm used to, I'll use rutabaga turnip for for a, a, an example, right? Mm-hmm. So when you get, you know, I, we've I've been at these meetings hundreds of times, and oh yeah, well that turnip's so good, but he's always in the, in October when there's lots around. But when he's not so lots around, he's not he's looking a lot better in March. You know what I'm saying? When he when he's got the the roundness to him or whatever, right? Uh, yeah, it just, it just boggles my mind sometimes, and and I really don't deal with a lot of the box stores. I'm kind of on the roadside, and I do a lot of the. Uh, I'm the guy calling with the piglets the other day too, but yeah. So I thought like, yeah, we could feed the animals that kind of thing too. So I mean, this you know, sometimes an imperfect vegetable is attractive to me. Like if I go into the grocery store and see locally grown, I'll use carrots for an example. They're not perfect. They're not a, don't have a perfect taper. They're not bright orange like the ones we see imported. That's the ones that gives me uh, reason for pause. I mean, just think about it. You grab a carrot out of a bag that's imported from somewhere else. You finish peeling them, then you look down. Your hands are orange, as opposed to getting one from Lester's or from your farm or anywhere else where it's tastier. It's grown closer to home, has a, a less of an imprint, and it is. It might be somewhat deformed or not perfect, but it's better. Oh, definitely. But like, I mean, you look in the store carrots, and and your your listeners can vouch for this. Anybody has grown carrots. I mean, they really, yeah, they do come out somewhat with a lot, a lot of trouble coming out straight as they do. But most carrots are crooked or whatever, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of wastage on vegetables. I mean, it's just unreal stuff that that is thrown away. The vegetable transplant. I don't. Go ahead. I was going to say the vegetable transplant program. If people aren't aware, I don't know how many commercial farmers uh, are using this service. You know, last time I read about it was something like fifty-four or fifty odd. It went from about two hundred and fifty thousand transplants when it first started at Wooddale. When you mentioned Wooddale, that's the Wooddale Center, the greenhouse out there. Yeah. So now it's millions of vegetable transplants. Millions. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's great. It's like it's, I mean. Yeah, we can go to that, but that's an awesome program, Patty. Like that's like, can you imagine we're growing vegetable transplants in scientific greenhouses, right? <laughs> like, you know, that I would never be able to look at. I mean, they're literally they grow trees in the rest of the year, but they grow transplants in the spring of the year, which yeah. is a big deal, right? And uh, yeah, it's it's unreal that program is. I mean, I, I can't even. I mean, Jerry Byrne was great to set that up, and I, I'll give him kudos to that. Right? It seems like. Uh, uh, you know, Jerry's a real mover and shaker. Wherever he goes, he was with the agriculture crowd, and this this worked. And now he's with the immigration crowd, and that seems to be working. And I don't know, but <laughs> so without it, Kudos. without Kudos. the transplants, so what would it mean for I don't know for yield? Because with a if you get off to a sluggish start to the season like we have this year, as opposed to getting these transplants which are ready to go, what does it mean for actually uh, your yield coming from the crops? Oh, it's doubled, you know, no no doubt it's doubled. I can take these transplants and I don't have to be up 3 o'clock in the morning trying to make sure the heaters are going and, you know, I can call these guys. I'll be in the morning, okay, we'll spray them down, make sure they're all watered and fertilizer before they go in the field, the things that got to be done with them, you know, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and it's not a, it's really nice that it's not a big cost and that because that, that kind of that helps us because then we can kind of put it not all the time now but most times we can put it on the, you know on 
and the and the market for you know you you know for a half decent price. Where everything else in Newfoundland, when you change the agriculture, is uh, yeah, it's a lot of money, right? Because you got to look at you're shipping in fertilizers, right? I mean, what was this year? Two hundred and thirty dollars a ton for fertilizer. So that was if I got ten tons, that's twenty three hundred dollars extra on that fertilizer that I got to buy. What kind of crop varieties are in the transplant uh, this year? Because it's usually uh, cabbage and onions and lettuce and broccoli and turnip. But what's in it this year? Do you happen to know? Yeah, I got my list here in the truck there now. Uh, let's see. Okay, so we got uh, cabbage, which is, uh, we got two cabbages. One's an early, one's a late. We got rutabaga, I don't know, uh, yeah you're breaking up chris unfortunately i'd like to hear that list but yeah that transplant program has proven to be quite a quite a leg up for the farmers yeah so we got cabbages we got roots i can only half hear him so i imagine the listeners can't hear him at all uh Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, it's breaking up badly. But, Chris, I appreciate you making time for the show, and good luck with uh, getting the turnips uh, grown to full maturity. All right, perfect. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate your uh, program for sure. Appreciate your time. All the best. Okay, right, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I haven't seen the most recent numbers for this year, but no question, if you get something that has a better shot at growing to maturity during what are very short seasons here for those particular crop varieties that uh, Chris was speaking to, obviously that's been massive success. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I did mention there that there is also this grocery rebate, right? A one-time bump in your GST that's coming out on the 5th of July. Questions have been asked as to if I owe CRA, whether it be with clawbacks on the CERB and or you have an outstanding uh, tax bill, will they or can they take your grocery rebate? I've been told, yes, they can and they likely will. Also, when it comes to these pending climate action incentive payments, the carbon tax rebate, there's also lots of questions out there about whether or not that's going to be clawed back if you owe a debt to CRA. Someone who's gone through this exact issue has sent me an email with some details they found out, so I'm going to share them with you because many of you are probably in this predicament. Okay. It's one payment per household, which is absolutely right. Unlike the grocery rebate, if you file your taxes and you're eligible for GST, you don't have to do anything else. You're going to get the rebate check, and that's everybody. But in the climate action incentive payment, it's a payment per household. That's it. So if, if you owe money to CRA they will absolutely use that credit, that payment, uh, towards your debt. If only one person owes money to CRA, you will not receive it. Let's say spouses who file taxes at the same time, same method. Here's the problem here that this person experienced. Okay, let's say, paint the picture. The wife owes money to CRA, the husband does not. If they look at the wife's assessment first, the household is not going to get the carbon rebate. If they look at the husband's first, they will get the rebate. So it seems like a pretty willy-nilly way to go about it. If there are spouses file taxes at the same time and the credit is bigger or larger than the debt, you think you'd get something, but it should not come down to which person's tax filings they looked at first. I mean, is that a real legitimate way to realistically approach this climate action incentive payment? So the short answers are, if you owe money to CRA, 
you're not going to get your carbon tax rebate. If you owe money to CRA, you're probably not going to get the grocery rebate either. That's information we got from the feds themselves. But this one about the carbon tax rebate, that came from a listener via email, which is absolutely helpful. And then we had a gentleman on talking about food waste in the hospitals and got a note from a nurse. She says that he's absolutely 100% right. And if we have things that are sealed and are microwavable, and whether it be cheeses or jams or crackers, cookies, whatever the case may be, or other drinks, juice boxes, what have you, there is absolutely no need in this world for that stuff to go in the garbage. You know, so while we talk about the cost, and you know, there's a gentleman, Mike, who called, calls about the company that has the contracts and millions and billions of dollars leaving the province, should there not be some adherence to saving food from the garbage can if it's sealed and can be eaten by someone else maybe the next day or someone who's not even in the hospital? If I have a pack of cookies, why would anyone working in a dietary simply tip the tray upside down on top of the garbage bucket and everything that wasn't eaten by that patient goes directly in the garbage if it's sealed? If it's a juice box or a pack of cookies or whatever the case may be? I mean, I know it's... You know, in essence, you, maybe the employees think, well, it's not my problem, it's not my waste. Well, ultimately, it is. Because if you have a job, then you're paying tax. If you're paying tax, you're contributing to the waste. So, consequently, it's everyone's problem. Anyway, that's interesting. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Ron, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Hi. Uh, Patty, I'd like to update you regarding the Bay Roberts water sewage issues that I had there, uh, I was discussing with you about uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, I think I remember exactly what's going on. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, I'd like to t- thank Minister Pam Parsons and her assistant, Lisa Brown. They've intervened and advocated on my behalf to discuss my concerns with the town of Bay Roberts. And uh, and they're to be commended, actually, for their hard work and their, uh, their lines of communication with me, keeping me in the loop on the progress of uh, the town of Bay Roberts and what they're going to do. I guess what we should do, Ron, is describe your issue for folks who didn't hear our last call and then give us the update. Sure. So for the last five years, I had water sewage issues. Uh, For example, uh, whenever it rained, the pumps couldn't handle the capacity, and I couldn't use my washroom facilities, my shower, or wash my hands, and so forth. Also, uh, numerous times, you know, 10 to 15 times annually my uh, the pumps would go down and I couldn't use my washroom or my showers but I didn't know the pumps were down and when I flushed the toilet the water would bellow out because there was nowhere for the water to go because the pumps the sewage used to back up right up to the end of the line I guess and my house was the end of the line for the water sewage so having said that Patty uh, I must say uh, there, there seem to be two key areas that uh, needs to be ad- needed to be addressed. One is addressed, I guess. Uh, I'm really appreciative that the town council uh, did address my issues. I believe it was a combination of software glitches that controls the operation of the pumps for that particular pump station and the pumps themselves. As well, Patty, they moved my line, my water sewer line, up further up to a higher elevation as well. So, 
Patty, I, I do have to uh, apologize to the counselors uh, at Bay Roberts. I was under the assumption and the impression that all the town councilors were made aware of my situation for the past five years. And that wasn't the case. The councillors were not aware of my concerns. Uh, I brought my concerns to the mayor, the former mayor, the administrator, and the director of public works. And I was, I guess, uh, I don't know if it was misled, but I was under the assumption that the town councillors were aware of uh, my concerns. And uh, there was no, I had several councillors call, uh, Councillor Dean Franny, Councillor Perry Bowery, and Jeff Seymour, Deputy Mayor. And they, that's when I found out last week that they weren't aware of my issues the past five years. So, you know, by those guys reaching out to me, and they, they told me they would support my cause and my concerns, uh, I, felt, I felt really like a resident, I guess, of the town of Bay Roberts rather than an outsider. <clears throat> so my water and sewer now is working. I have no issues. And, Patty, uh, uh, I'd like to thank you for, uh, as well for giving me an opportunity to voice my concerns on your program. No problem. So I guess with the software glitches, once they're made aware of it, that should be something that's relatively easily rectified. It seems like they, they've been working on it for the last seven or eight days. I've been out multiple times uh, just checking and, and making sure that the water and soil works. And uh, they're, they're troubleshooting it. I think they have it fixed. Uh, to date, everything seems fine, the pumps, and, uh, and that's working. And uh, so I think they may have it working right now and, and, and it's resolved. But uh, uh, I guess it's through you and your media platform allowing me have it, to have a voice and the public to hear my concerns. They, uh, and Pam Parson intervening, I think that they put the push on, and as well as the councillors. Uh, once they become aware of my situation, they, uh, they intervened as well. And uh, they, they uh, supported me and, uh, I guess, put a push on to, uh, to resolve the issue. Well, I'm glad it's uh, actually working in the right direction anyway. Hopefully be rectified. Ron, do you happen to know if other people in the surrounding area were having the same issues? Well, I know there have been some other uh, issues, uh, I guess, for people that are more like myself, further at the end of the line of those uh, pump stations. But uh, I, I guess I really focused, Patty, on my my residents yeah, fair enough. Else, you know yeah. but i do hear amongst uh, some residents that there is some issues of other residents uh having similar situations and uh and the town is uh, uh starting to address those concerns well that's the good news update sometimes <laughs> it actually does come to this where you know, whether or not there's people been actually in the loop and are aware of the situation or the right people that we're speaking to to try to get some solutions or to have these issues rectified. So at least this is a good news update. Not all the time do we get the good news updates. For sure. And, Patty, your platform allows us to have a voice, and I, and I truly believe that in itself is powerful for, for people that are listening and, and 
I guess, make people take the initiative to uh, to act on things. So I, I really thank you and the people, all the people that supported me in resolving my issue. Well, I'm glad it worked out, Ron. I appreciate the update this morning. Great. Thanks. Take care, Patty. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, and so th- sometimes I, I wonder whether or not folks think that their issue or the problem that they're dealing with is too small or too insignificant to, you know, quote-unquote, waste our time here on the show to talk about it. No such thing. You know, if it's important enough for you to want to pick up the phone, that's good enough for me. It really truly is. So we talk about the big headline-grabbing issues, as we should, but of course there's things happening in smaller communities, smaller neighborhoods, on a variety of fronts that we're absolutely happy to talk about because when we shine a light on stuff, sometimes we get a little bit of action. I'm going to bring up something that I just got in an email about police presence. A couple of things. So... The question about where is Omar? Omar Mohammed, people think, is the person who was killed in the police-involved shooting uh, last week. Still no firm confirmation from whether it be the Serious Incident Response Team and or the RNC. I don't know if there's something written in stone about protocols about next to kin has to be no, uh, notified before any information is confirmed or released. But apparently this man's family is in a refugee camp in Chad, Africa. So the logistics of getting information to them must be really tricky, obviously. But that question is looming. Plus, hearing from a listener, and we'll just say in the West End last night, there was a significant police presence on this one particular street that I'll leave out of it. But we're not hearing anything from the police. Hasn't been covered as far as I can find in the local media. But when people see these types of a police activity and a police presence on this in this case you know automatically if you're not told exactly what's going on whether or not they're looking for one individual or following up or investigating a, a specific crime or whatever the case may be is people will inherently be worried about their safety so i get it there's some things that are going to be kept close to the vest and you're not going to get every detail and ongoing investigations what have you but you know we do in certain circumstances here well you know people need to be worried about their safety the crime we're investigating if someone was targeted da, 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 da. but if anybody knows including the rnc if you can help shed some light on what was going on that required this significant police presence in the west end of the city of st john's last night that'll be helpful information to share with those folks in the surrounding area because apparently this particular person says you know basically reading between the lines speaking on behalf of a variety of people who are sharing the exact same concern. Should I be worried? That's information we think should be shared pretty quickly. Uh, We spoke with Ruth Lawrence last week on the program. She was going to be hosting the last weekend's 38th Annual Arts and L Awards. And apparently it was a big night at the Stephenville Arts and Culture Center. There was well in excess of 300 people that took in the the live uh, opportunity to get together and celebrate the arts. So, and you know, you hear from someone like Melanie Martin, who's the executive director of Arts and L, never again take for granted what it means to be able to congregate in person for these types of celebrations. Quick shout out to the recipients. The award for artists of the year went to Persistence Theatre Company here in the city of St. John's. Jean Graham was on hand. She's one of the founding members and former chair of the company. She accepted the award on behalf of the crew. St. Michael's Print Shop was awarded the patron of the arts. Executive Director Christine Francis was there to accept the award. And Picard Vandering took home the award for arts and education for her work in education and public programming at the rooms. Terrific stuff. Uh, Susan Shirk Shark, pardon me. Susan Shark was recognized for the Hall of Honor. 
uh, good for her. She's an advocate for the arts community as an actual economic driver, which it is. St. John's comic strip, comic strip artist Wallace Ryan received the Arts Achievement Award. He wasn't in attendance, but gave his acceptance speech in video. And the Inuk filmmaker Jessica Brown won the Emerging Artist Award. Congratulations to all involved and recognized at the 38th Annual Arts and L Awards. Final break of the morning. When we come back, the topic, you tell me. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. One issue that I struggle with, of course, and I've said it on the program, it's nothing to be embarrassed about, is I don't sleep very well. I have no trouble getting to sleep. It's when I wake up that I have a problem falling back to sleep. So I did hear Brian Medora in the VOCM newscast talking about a new report out. There's actually two studies about the relationship between sleep and your brain health and other uh, serious physical issues that come with the lack of sleep if you're a chronically poor sleeper. It's a pretty contradictory story, though. In one hand, there's a doctor who's a sleep specialist at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center saying that his best advice is don't worry. Okay. He goes on to say, step back from the news. Stop being so fixated on sleep performance. Don't judge your sleep on some measure of what perfect or ideal sleep should be. Everybody's different. Fair enough. But then in the very next page, it talks about chronically poor sleep and what the consequences could be for your physical and mental well-being. So direct associations with cardiovascular problems, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, depression, anxiety. So on one hand, tell me don't worry about it and on the other hand tell me that it's a massive problem for my physical and mental well-being okay they also go on this pretty large group being studied here and the benefits of daytime napping in addition to whatever hours of sleep you get throughout the night but that's one thing for me I absolutely have a massive problem getting back to sleep. So here's just another example of the contradictory news story that I read this morning so Canadians there's a large percentage of the country that their sleep habits are worsening. I suppose there's a variety of reasons as to why that's happening. For many people out there who are able to get the seven to nine hours of sleep, you always hear that eight is the, the magic number here for the number of hours you need throughout the course of the night. And then you just factor in the different complications with the issues that you're dealing with at the job or with family relationships or with finances. And then, of course, the lack of sleep that we hear reported uh, with the country's youth, teenagers in particular, what that means for their brain health and ability to absorb the curriculum if and when they're going to school. So the sleep study, yes, someone said, how come we're not talking about sleep? Well, maybe we can. Maybe we'll get these two studies reviewed by Dr. Sheila Garland at Memorial University, who is a sleep specialist herself, to help us break down what she is taking away from these two most recent reports but in one hand i'm told it's a problem and in the other hand another doctor says ah don't worry well which one is it because i do know i don't find myself really foggy all day uh, if and when i've had a poor night's sleep it doesn't seem to have a massive impact on my ability to do the job or what have you i just find it more annoying than anything else okay let's go to line number one let's take it more to the director of fund development with epilepsy newfoundland and labrador that's cameron kirby or kilfoy pardon me i knew that cameron you're on the air hey patty how's it going bad not bad at all how about you oh not too bad you know as good as i can be on a sunny tuesday and we're not out in it i can't wait to get out for a walk actually today oh you're telling me yep. i got a few more hours <laughs> hang in there so listen, I just wanted to call and uh, get the word out there about Epilepsy Newfoundland and Labrador's uh, online silent auction. 
So we uh, I've been hosting an auction since uh, June 15th. It will be live until July 14th, and we have prizes across the province because we are a provincial organization, so we truly wanted anyone in the province to be able to hop on and find something that speaks to them and is also within their region as well. What kind of stuff you got? All right, I'll give you I'll give you a few examples of what we got. So we have two tickets to the Best Kind Comedy Tour here in St. John's. We have a season pass to Perchance Theater. Uh, also, we have uh, two passes to the Insectarium. Uh, a full tour for Cormac B Sanctuary. We have tickets to the opening night of the Stephenville Theater Festival. Have a ton of gift cards and prizes from Central. All tons of stuff in the metro such as the electric bike rentals we have uh, uh, personal training sessions craig's cookies um, get air donated uh, murray premises donated a one-night stay we got some of the local breweries in on it the botanical gardens there's a nl rogues uh, fan package and much much more how before and we'll give out the details about where people can find the opportunity to bid on those items but how prevalent is epilepsy? Oh, it is very much so prevalent. So right now, there's approximately about 10,000 individuals in our province affected by uh, epilepsy currently. And in more recent years, it's come out that uh, diagnoses are more so within the senior population and then the younger children population. I know there's no cure, but is anything proving to be beneficial for treating symptoms? And I know there's different severities of epilepsy from Mm -hmm. a partial seizure all the way through the more dramatic, but is anything out there proven to be helpful or beneficial? Because I know there's not a cure. Oh, yeah. But yes, there are lots of different uh, like medications or resources that are out there that can help someone live a, a promising and fulfilling life. Now, that's a little outside of my expertise, but anyone who is looking for that kind of information can contact our uh, information officer at uh, info at epilepsynl.com, and she can provide you with all the greatest detail possible. Yeah, I didn't want to put you on the spot, you know, outside of the work you do for Epilepsy NL. So uh, you describe some of the prizes or items that are available for auction. Where do I find the information? How do I make a bid? Yeah, so you can go actually straight to our website, which is epilepsynl.com. Uh, On our top menu bar, there's actually a little section that says Get Involved. Under Get Involved, there's a direct link that will bring you to the auction. From there, you'll see the list of prizes. And like I said, we have all kinds of prizes from all over the province. We have... Uh, we we have the metro, then we have central, we have the southern and western region, and as well Labrador. And yes, yeah, so once you go to the auction page, it's just as simple as looking down through the prizes and then clicking place a bid and then putting in your amount, and then I'll get a notification letting me know that you bid. And like I said, we got all sorts of prizes for kids, teenagers, parents, older adults. There's something for everyone. So, like I said, just to give you a few more examples really quickly, um, we have passes to the rooms. We have two passes to the Haunted Hike. For any uh, anybody out there with a, a dog or a puppy, we have a Wags to Whiskers package, as well as we have two tickets to a night of dinner and a show at uh, the Spirit of Newfoundland. We have an Iceberg Quest uh, tour pass. 
and uh, Birch Brook ski passes for those who want to get ready for the winter pretty early. Um, we have a Come From Away experience where you can meet two characters who were portrayed in the Come From Away musical. And yeah, lots of prize. A six-month subscription to the Down Homer, and we have a couple different skincare packages up there as well. Just say that again about the Come uh, Come From Away experience. So you get to meet two people who were portrayed in the in the yeah, so so Durham and Diana Flynn. I was going to say, is it Durham Flynn? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly who it is. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, so that's up there, too, for anyone who's really into the me. I tried my hardest to get a few passes to an upcoming show of Come From Away, but unfortunately I couldn't, so this was the next best thing for those Come From Away fans. Ah, Derm and Diane are good people. Very good people. I actually, sir, I actually am a freelance journalist as well, and I uh, did a story on him a few months ago. That's how I knew about him. His character in Come From Away is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard lots of great things about them. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Yeah, Durham's a friend of mine. Durham and Diane. So really terrific stuff. Listen, good luck with it. Very quickly, how do you spend the funds? Like, what specifically do you have earmarked for whatever money you were able to raise during this auction? So any money that we raise during this auction, 100% of the proceeds are coming back to ENF to support the services and programs that we offer to those living with epilepsy in our province. Uh, keep up the good work, Cameron. I appreciate the time this morning. Hey, no problem. I really appreciate you taking the call. Anytime. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Right. It's Cameron Kilfoy, Fund Development Coordinator with Epilepsy Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, so n another question about, you know, some information or the lack thereof. We mentioned the police presence in the West End last night. Steve is asking about follow-up on the shooting in Shea Heights a few weeks ago. Fair enough. We'll try to find out some information on that one as well. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.